Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. episode of of the devil's party my name is alice and i'm rowan and we are back and we are we, doing manfred manfred see we made it the it was main of the devil's party we are still of the devil's party i'm excited about manfred i know you're excited about manfred it's the first other text after well, we did zafloya yeah yeah i suppose okay so then it's like the bookend for zafloya we started for, for paradise <laughs> lost we've bookended paradise lost with zafloya and with manfred well that was a good choice it was a good choice and i think um no this point is about the passions actually but I could make another <laughs> point about Dega but essentially what I've done is I've found again passions on hand for the part with the chamois hunter the chamois mm-hmm. hunter mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like they've got the same vibes but what I'm going to do is I'm going to like do a closer reading of it I'm going to explain what a couple year did of the hours. passion come out let me figure that out really quickly Okay, so The Passions was published in 1811. Thank you. Okay, interesting, because Manfred is 1818, oh, 1817, 18. Do we know when Byron was writing it? Yeah, 1816, 1817. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so it's after the fact. Hmm, so Byron stole from Dacre? Possibly. It, like, I think it's possible because we know that he's done things with her before, like her poetry. But one of the things I found really interesting about the chamois hunter scene in The Passions was that it's followed a guy walking around on some high mountains and contemplating how it brings his soul above his clay and talks about how like he sees God in the splendor instead of in um, churches. The sublime, so the return to nature, so it's Wordsworthian. Yeah, but like then he like extrapolates and he talks about a whole bunch of nonsense. Mm -hmm. Romantic. So yeah, we'll see how that goes. Right, so Manfred, we now begin our examination of gothic villains and heroes and we're going to find out that there's a very fine line between the two, honestly. (laughs) And Manfred's kind of an odd place to start because it's long after the gothic has initiated developed but I think it's an interesting place to start because there's so many traditions working within Manfred and we can sort of talk about how they culminate and then look backwards so so that's the goal exciting I'm really excited because I think Manfred was one of the first poems I studied in uni in wow. the gothic genre yeah. oh there you go yeah. even then to what extent is it gothic we're going to discuss today we're now turning our attention to sort of the 18th and the 19th century we've been in the 17th century with Paradise Lost um, but we're moving on we've got things to do and this is a time of um, huge experimentation with different types of fiction particularly gothic fiction an explosion in the writing of them which Byron is certainly a part of the other good thing about Manfred is it's very accessible I think quite easy to read yeah, yeah no I think so as well story is paced well yeah I only had to google words like two or three times reading through it well, so yeah it off- as I say it kind of offers um, an introduction to these big gothic ideas so what we're going to be doing more of obviously with Paradise Lost because it's so hard there's so much but we really work through the text with the plot. But now we're going to start moving on to assuming people understand the text or they've read the text and then building on there. So if you haven't read it, you might want to go read it before the class that you're um, <laughs> you're preparing <laughs> yeah. for by listening to this podcast. It's also, um, 
It's also really short and there are a couple of free online versions you can find because mm. a lot of Byron's works are free online or Peter through Co- your library. So Peter Cochran, um, C-O-C-H-R-A-N, um, is a great source for this. He has a website all about Byron and there's a bunch of PDFs on there that he has put together. He sort of edited the poems himself with the appropriate footnotes and context and introductions. Um, he's an amazing scholar and I got really excited because I thought, oh, wow, yeah, I could have him as my examiner, but um, he's dead. So, yeah, <laughs> same as Thorslev. I don't know what I'm going to do. Anyway, uh, so we'll, we'll briefly talk about the plot, shall we? Yes, let's do, let's talk about the plot. I think that's important. Right. So it opens in his study. Manfred is in his in his Gothic hall in his castle. And he, they didn't. I don't think there was much like description of what was going on there. But when we knowing that it was Gothic, I go in there and I start picturing like arcane books <laughs> and like shit bubbling in beakers and like like skeletons on the walls and bugs and guts. No? Yeah. If it's the theme. <laughs> yeah, and he's in his this his study in his castle, reflecting on his suffering despite his unparalleled power and knowledge. Because me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's sucking because he's been cursed, and the type of curse he's been cursed with is one that means that he can't die and he has to suffer forever. But he doesn't tell us why or who gave him the curse or what anything more than that. But he decides he gets it together and he says, "I'm going to call the spirits one more time and see if they can help me." Uses an immense amount of power. It's meant to demonstrate just how powerful Manfred is. And he asks for forgetfulness and oblivion. And what do they tell him? Can't help you, mate. (laughs) Essentially. Yes. Piss off. Um. (laughs) Piss off. Did he put that in the poem? What did he, what did he rhyme it with? Piss off. You're trying to come up with something that rhymes with off. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Same. So after he fails with spirits, he kind of resolves to die. He climbs Jungfrau, which is a mountain in the Swiss Alps and it's pretty huge and you can Google it now. It's spelled J-U-N-G-F-R-A-U. Google that. Have a look. Imagine standing on the top of that. And the point is the fact that, you know, not only is he so powerful, he can call the spirits he can also climb this huge mountain in a place that other people can't go the only other things up there are these like tiny plants that barely grow in like the birds and it's things like it's birds of prey that are up there and a chamois hunter <laughs> <laughs> and there's one guy looking for goat <laughs> or is it a deer is that what it is it's a deer <laughs> it's a special kind of goat they're like fluffy i think it's a special kind of goat that just keeps on popping up in literature for no well, other reason because they're in the high mountain places and poets go in high mountain places to think about things. Apparently they can't think about it at a lower altitude. Most poets I know have asthma. I don't understand how this works. <laughs> uh, so Manfred's on the edge of young Frau and he thinks I'm, I'm going to jump. This is it. I'm doing it. And right at that moment, the chamois hunter drags him back from the ledge and he's going, you are insane, man. And he recognizes in Manfred the traits of nobility and power. He sees him and we sort of get this third party perspective as well, uh, confirming our suspicions, which is cool. He offers Manfred wine and God and help, <laughs> all of which he refuses. And he goes a little mad and insists there's blood on the rim of the of the cup. And the hunter very fairly comes to the assumption that Manfred is cuckoo bananas. Because he's so Manfred sees the blood on the cup and then the hunter assumes that he's mad. Yeah. He's yeah, like, no, that's a fair assumption. Yeah. That something's going on. So Manfred doesn't get to kill himself. So then he's a bit sad and he calls the Witch of the Alps. Again, a huge feat for a mere mortal. And he calls her mostly so he can talk to her. So he's sad sad and lonely and he wants someone to talk to mm. which is honestly the story of i think most women's life this guy i just want to i just want to talk to you just want to <laughs> unload some emotions like, i'm busy i'm controlling <laughs> weather systems what do you want go to therapy. i literally put down a tornado to come here and you're saying that you just want to talk <laughs> 
Fold the washing. Yes. <laughs> so he finally relates some of his backstory and we get this idea that he was in some sort of tragic romantic relationship. There are hints of incest and somehow uh, he lost her and it's sort of implied that perhaps it was suicide and perhaps it was because it was an incestuous relationship and that he's tortured by the guilt from this and has been spending the rest of his life trying to find a way to bring her back. And she says, look, I can help you for a price, your soul. And he's like, no. <laughs> and this is something recurring about Manfred. He refuses to submit to anyone else's will. He won't subject himself to a power other than his own, which is pretty cool. Mm, it is cool. He's making, he's not actually doing any sort of devilish pacts. So if someone no. tells you that this poem is about a guy who makes a pact with the devil. Incorrect. Push, yeah, push the books, push the poem slowly across the table and look them in the eye and say, read this and say that again. You know, he's a bit pissed off because the lady he uh, forced to listen to him talk didn't want to help him. Um, so take notes there. <laughs> he goes to the Hall of Aramanis for help. This time they pity him and they marvel at his power. It's the first time the spirits have sort of given him that kind of respect despite being much more powerful than him. And he talks to Nemesis and they're like, kneel down for Nemesis. And he's like, no. And they kind of respect that about him. And eventually they do raise the specter of a start, who is his lover, we assume. And he kind of freaks out. <laughs> he's only upset more. And she doesn't really give him much to work with. <laughs> she disappears. He's sad. He returns to his castle. And by the way, there are two different versions of Manfred. We're going to talk about the earlier one and why it got changed in a second, but we're just going to go with the canonical one for now. Um, so in the last act, Manfred is at his castle. His servants are talking about him and they're like, he's insane. <laughs> <laughs> he's, got, he's got a history. <laughs> his yeah. stuff's gone down. An abbot comes to visit him and wants to help him and the servants are like, no, don't waste your time. But he is insistent and Manfred says, please leave now. And he does, but then he comes back as a demon kind of turns up and tries to take Manfred's soul and Manfred's like, no, my soul does not belong to you. And then he dies, but it's on his own terms and when he kind of chooses to. And it's very ambiguous exactly what kills him or whether the curse is just finally lifted or... Anyway, he dies and he says, tis not so difficult to die, which has always interested me because he's wanted to die since the beginning of the book. <laughs> the poem is like, really someone hard. kill me. <laughs> he's been trying to throw himself off mountains and shit's just been getting in the way. He's had a hard he's time dying. Yeah, yeah, it's rough. So that's Manfred. Do you, what, do you like it? I kind of liked it. It was short. It was to the point. There was less like drama than I thought. I was like, hmm, you could really kind of like make this into a, like it could have been something as big as a Shakespearean play. Like there's mm -hmm. the opportunity for that. So I was curious about why it was so short, but not in the sense that I'm like picking on it for being short. Um, probably because it's not, it's not meant to be a play play. It's a closet drama, meaning you're meant to just sort of read it on a Sunday afternoon with a cup of tea yourself and imagine it all. So whereas a Shakespearean play needs to have, you know, the five act structure, the complicated plots, all of that stuff. This is just like a little story about Manfredo. And we're going to talk about the influences, influences on it and like, That'll help explain why it is the way it is, I think, a little bit more for you. So if it's so short, why are we still talking about it as much as we're talking about Shakespeare? Because it's so good and we're going to talk about why. <laughs> but first, we must talk about Lord George Gordon Byron. Byron! Yes, this name. I know this one. We have My boy. spoken about this thing on length. True. I'm just, I'm going to hit the, the major plot points here. Bring out <laughs> your bingo card. Because um, if, if you get me started on Byron's life, life story, I, we will be here for hours. I recommend 
A source for this, or if you're looking to read a good Byron biography, there are many. The problem is you get early ones which are incredibly biased and unfair, and then you get later ones that almost are like too much criticism is going on in them of the work and the po- like. It's not just looking at the events and the things influencing them and the evidence. So they're then sort of doing historiography on the events and applying capital T theory or capital D discourse, and that drives me insane. And I think the best one is probably still the first one I read, which was uh, Fiona McCarthy. Byron Life and Legend, which is fairly thorough, give you a good overview. And you can flick through it to sort of um, key periods if you're just wanting it for an essay and you need to be able to put stuff in an introduction. So there you go. Byron. Clara Tweet from Melbourne University or University of Melbourne in Scandalous Byron writes that contemporaries called him a cool, unconcerned fiend, an unsexed Circe, wild siren charming, apostle of infidelity, spoiled child of fame, a man of genius whose heart is perverted, England's best poet and her guiltiest son. She says, they said, his writing was a perpetual monument of the exalted intellect and the depraved heart and the very suicide of genius. So we're dealing with a lot here. Which is rather funny because he dealt he dealt with a lot and he had a lot going on, but yeah, my gosh. What, what a like, what a thing to put on a, um, on a grave. <laughs> yeah, I like the so idea much. of like, I am, a, I am a monument of exalted intellect and, and the depraved heart, but maybe I'm not depraved enough. I don't, I don't think so i think um i think mm, they were I'm fairly well adapted aren't i well, well adapted <laughs> no even as um as a person he's very intriguing especially yes. like just like his poems because so, oh. yeah well well he's as you know his life kind of challenges our expectations and our is it ethics or morals which oh. word am i both yeah <laughs> So, so to he, explain yeah. what Rowan is talking about, Byron's born 1788, he dies 1824. So he dies very young in his 30s. His father, there's like a, there's now a book by, oh, it's called The Fall of the House of Byron, which is very cool and looks into the Byron family history before Byron and basically makes the argument that they were all scumbags. <laughs> um, cheating, lying scumbags. It's just this one could write poetry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so his father is basically a pirate and disappears, um, a seaman. Um, his mother... Mother has a complicated relationship with for the entirety of his life. Yeah, you'd be unsurprised to hear it's complicated and I'll leave it at that. As a child she would left him in the care of a nurse who almost definitely sexually assaulted him which he suggests or implies led to some of his more what he refers to as kind of depraved sexual behaviour, etc. But the reality is he was just traumatised from a very young age um, by his treatment of the women around him including his nurse and his mother. Um, And like many of the romantics kind of carries a suspicion about this. So there's that. Um, He's educated at Harrow and then he's sent to Cambridge. He shows a propensity for poetry at a very young age and writes sonnets and things to to cousins and girls that he likes and there's stories here. Um, He eventually goes to London and then he very famously travels the East and he goes to sort of um, uh, different locations than people generally do on the Grand Tour because of the wars that have been going on in France and whatnot. It was kind of not safe and, and not practical to go through there. So he goes to Greece, he goes to Turkey, he has a great time and Child Harold's pilgrimage basically follows his journey. The first thing he ever publishes is Hours of Idleness, which is um, trash. <laughs> <laughs> and as we've talked about before, Charlotte, um, almost definitely a ripoff of Charlotte Dacre. And then he publishes English Bards and Scotch Reviewers, which is this polemic, vitriolic takedown of the publishing, poetry, reviewing culture in England. And that kind of makes him his name a little bit as a, as a poet um, or as a writer. Seen as 
a sort of upstart for doing that? Because that's the second thing he's published. A little bit, uh, yeah. It, he tried to sort of quash it later on because he does come up, uh, come. he does seem just like an arrogant um, young man. But he was right <laughs> on yep. a lot of things. <laughs> he just came too hard too early, you know. <laughs> Returns to London, takes his seat in the House of Lords briefly. He has lots of affairs with lots of women. It's a whole thing. Read a bit, bi- read a biography on it, including probably most famously Lady Caroline Lamb, who writes a damning Blenarvan, which sounds like, you know, Lord Byron uh, later on. And then a lot of people learn, like, I'm going to talk about this later, but um, Goethe learns about Byron by reading Glenarvan as an almost like biography, which is a problem. You don't want to start there. Yeah. <laughs> don't start there. So he marries Annabella, Annabella Milbank for her money. And she's quite like, she's pretty, but she's very kind of um, pious and prudish. And as it turns out, not into butt stuff. <laughs> Which that was the um, Grounds final for the nail in the coffin. Yeah, right. Uh, it was a few things. There was a lot of things. <laughs> Which is, that, it's just kind of funny that we know that now. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, two hundred years later, it was part of it was part of her filing for divorce. Um, mm. But yeah, it was just one of many things. Um, they spend very little time together as the marriage goes on, and there's a great account of him in the carriage with his friend Hobhouse, Cam Hobhouse, who he travelled um, with on the grand tour for most of it. Basically freaking out like a little boy because Byron was probably bi if not gay. Um, That's why he spent so much time in Greece because it was legal there to be with men and he viewed marriage as a form of essentially slavery and and was very against doing it but knew he needed to for money so he's just freaking out in this carriage on the way to this wedding that he doesn't want to do with this woman that he doesn't love and he has no one else really left to turn to emotionally other than Cam Hobhouse who is like oh god. So the wedding obviously doesn't go very well. They do have a child, Ada, um, Ada who, who com- turns out to be Ada Lovelace, yes. who works with Charles Babbage on the first ever computer, which is pretty cool. There's also the his sister. Ah, yes. No, are they full siblings? No, they are half siblings. Yeah, um, but that Byron... doesn't really help, does it? <laughs> no, <laughs> we'll talk about this. So uh, Augusta Lee was married and had kids already when they sort of rekindled their friendship. They were writing letters beforehand, but they became friends again and he went to stay with her and she stayed with him and they were very, very close and spent a lot of time together and almost certainly definitely had a baby together. And yeah. at the end of his life, a lot of his letters were burnt, the most depraved letters. Can you imagine? based on what's left over. So it's very likely we've lost the hardcore evidence for this. There's no way to empirically prove it. We can't do DNA testing at this point. But basically, definitely, yes, uh, most uh, modern Byron scholars will agree that he probably was having a relationship with his sister. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. (laughs) So, uh, of course, Annabella Milbank wants a divorce for the sister thing because she kind of finds out from Augusta and they exchange letters. And Augusta is very sorry and sad and upset and I didn't mean to steal your husband. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean that's not the problem here. That's not the biggest issue. Uh, oh, <laughs> so there's that. Part of the grounds for the divorce was the sodomy, the relationship with the sister, the debts. He was also a dick bag and she had plenty of evidence on that. Yeah. My favorite story of Byron, whenever I teach Byron, I kind of do a lesson in two halves. So the first half, I talk about all the great things he did and what he accomplished and what he gave us and how interesting he was. And the like, <laughs> in Hero and Leander, the, the hero swims this huge, Expand. he has to swim this huge distance. <laughs> yeah. And 
Byron goes and reproduces it. Like, cause he just loves poetry and he's like, oh, they did it in the poem. So I have to do it, which is exactly all of us wandering right. around. So yeah. he was a freaking nerd. That's what you're telling me. <laughs> a huge nerd. And he read a lot and it was excitable. So I always start with like that. And then I slowly drop in all the awful stuff he did. Yep. Um, <laughs> and then force them because Byron's one of those figures that very quickly you can just be like, ugh, mm, white man, evil. No, no good. Mm. We need to cancel it. We need to censor this. We shouldn't talk about it. But he gave us so much. It's like, if you cut out Byron and don't look at where it comes from, you're actually doing a disservice to everyone. So I think it's about um, um, trying to reconcile or recognizing that you can't reconcile that there are two things going on here and one is bad and maybe one is less bad. Yeah. But they finally get divorced and he can't see his daughter and that sucks for him. He flees to the continent because his debts are that bad. Um, he did buy a carriage in the in the fashioned on Napoleon's carriage and he never paid for it. And as I was going to say, my favorite awful story of Byron is while Annabella was giving birth, he stood in the room below freaking out, throwing water bottles, soda water bottles at the ceilings and screaming because she was making too much noise apparently while in labor. Mm, yes. Yeah, that always gets half the class. <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> if you're not mm. convinced already. <laughs> Wait, which half? Okay. <laughs> so yeah, he goes to the continent and he starts traveling around. He takes up a house in Geneva with Polidori, very famously. Did he pay for it? <laughs> Baby. It's, they don't pay for a lot, honestly. <laughs> How? How do they just gallivant around Europe and not pay yeah, for anything? The way it worked was like, you're like, okay, bye, I'll send you the money. And then you just never send them the money. And right. then the debt has come for you, but you're constantly moving around. They can't track your phone. You're just oh. so crazy. Yeah. No one has any money. And yeah. And he, he flees because of the debts, the incest controversy, the divorce, but also the increasing accusations of homosexual behavior, which was obviously illegal back then. Um, and um, when you say the word sodomy also, that's in the sense that it was a law, right? That yes. was the name you weren't of meant the... to sodomize your wife. Yeah, so it wasn't just... So, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, he was just... homosexual and sodomizing his wife. Yeah, so that was like a criminal act It's in itself. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, did, do you reckon he fled just because of one of these things mainly, or because no? I'd say it's all of them. Yeah, he needed to apart. go. So he goes to Geneva. The alley, the Shelleys come. He tours the Alps. He has a great time. He meets Claire Claremont and impregnates her. For fun. <laughs> yep. Well done. Claire Claremont is in love with him in London. She kind of propositioned him, and he went with it. And she took that as <laughs> he gave her an inch, and <laughs> so to speak, <laughs> and, <laughs> and she took a mile. Um, Jesus Christ, Alice. (laughs) (laughs) And the story goes that once they get to Geneva, Byron doesn't really want a lot to do with her. And and all of the dramatizations of this, Claire is always represented as like really annoying and and kind of silly, but she's actually very clever, very smart, very astute. And she was properly heartbroken by Byron, particularly because when she became pregnant, Byron said, okay, I'll provide for this kid, but I'm going to take it from its mother and look after it and you don't get to have it. And that just broke. Claire for many many years and she outlives every everyone um I can't remember who dies out of Mary Shelley or her first I think Mary dies before her she goes to Russia and becomes a tutor there but she's just the most unsettled part of the whole Byron Shelley circle and the most troubled and just struggling constantly and I always feel quite bad for her actually based on how everyone treated her but yeah he impregnates Claire Claremont um Allegra dies at a very young age at a convent and that also obviously destroys Claire and eventually Byron kind of settles down in Italy. He spent some time in 
Venice, but then he becomes kind of a paramour to Teresa Giacoli, which was a thing back then. You could be married to sort of a rich, gross man, but you could have your side hoe and Byron was a side hoe and the rich, gross man was cool with it. So I want to be someone's side hoe. Can you imagine the perks? Oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> figs. <laughs> what, what, are the, what are the other perks? <laughs> um, robes, really diaphanous robes. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> nice pajamas. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these are, these are the broad strokes. Uh, Byron was always inspired and attached to issues of freedom and liberty. Um, he was a huge Napoleon fanboy. His first speech in the House of Lords was in, su- in support of the Luddites. Do you know who the Luddites were? No. They were the frame breakers. Um, so basically, with the rise of the Industrial Revolution, people were creating machines that could do employees' jobs for them and kicking the employees out. And so they were rising up against it. And so if you call someone a Luddite now, you're kind of... You, the implication is that they are against development and change. But there's this whole political like What's implication, gonna... mm. <laughs> which is like, well, I'm against change because it hurts um, me and my place in society. So his first speech in the House of Lords was on that. And then, of course, towards the end of his life, <laughs> he decided to go to Greece to fight in the war against the Turkish. But he was a man without any military training with a lot of money who just sort of thought, I'll go and fix it. So, wait, how did he get money? I thought he was in debt or just didn't pay the debts and had yeah, a lot of money. Yeah, he just never paid for anything. Right. Yeah, it was absurd. And he had to sell, this is the problem, um, he had to sell his family home and it took forever to do it and he was sort of, back then you'd kind of work off the fact that you were going to get a huge inheritance one day but you hadn't got it yet so you'll accrue all of these debts up to it and then you don't get the inheritance or it takes forever to get the inheritance or whatever. So yeah, he was trying to sell his family home. Um, yeah. That's insane. How can yeah. you live like that? Just yeah. I know, it's very stressful thinking back on it and like debtor's prison was a whole thing. Like William Godwin just spent most of the end of his life trying to stay out of debtor's prisons. Um, it was pretty terrible because they just grab you. That's mm. so scary. Mm. Um, I reckon, mm. yeah, not to draw back on Rousseau, but mm, probably that structure well, is still around. Part of, <laughs> part of the reason they went to Geneva was because they loved Rousseau and Rousseau was from Geneva and he wrote mostly in Geneva. So <laughs> um, yeah, they're huge fans of these ideas of, you know, liberty, um, equality, fraternity. He's hugely inspired by the French Revolution, the American Revolution. Um, he thinks this is the way to go, which is why he goes and joins the Greeks. But he doesn't make it home. Um, and the accounts kind of vary and most people just assume he died of a fever. I think it's a bit more complicated than that or as complicated as, you know, he can make it based on the information we have. Mm. Basically, he goes out for a ride and he come, he go, he sort of stays out too long in the cold and gets very wet and comes <laughs> home. And he probably just had a cold and a really bad yeah. fever and obviously back then there was no way to bring your fever down. So they tried to do bloodletting. <laughs> <laughs> which just which, makes everything yeah. worse. <laughs> And I think they took like, it was a huge amount of blood. And there's this great picture of him at Missolonghi, which is where he died. And he's like, they're draining him. And there's this sort of porcelain bowl and it's just filling up with Byron's blood. (laughs) And he's just um, getting paler and paler. Yeah. Yeah. And he died. Surprise. And even in his own time, and this was kind of new and different, you know, he was the first ever rock star celebrity. He was this, um, the people's poet kind of thing. You know, Wordsworth never kicked off amongst everybody whereas everyone loved Byron everyone knew Byron in some capacity he was very widely read and celebrated in his own day and made a lot of money (laughs) he was also widely pirated which is part of how it had so much popularity
popular appeal. And he sort of encouraged that towards the end as well. For example, uh, or just as an example of um, how much people adored him, he was uh, popular, not just in England, but and not in Europe, but also in America, in Asia, we're starting to find some um, examples of early Byron readers, and obviously also in Australia. And in Italy, an American ship invited him on board just and like fired guns in salute of him and said, we love your work. <laughs> it's like a Kardashian visitor. Let's shoot some seagulls in your honor. Jesus yeah, essentially. <laughs> so there's lots of like awesome Byron stories like that. That's ridiculous. Mm. I mean, yeah, no, good for him, I guess, getting famous like that. But it makes sense the why we still talk about him because it's not like we've ever stopped. No. Yeah. And for a lot of years uh, after his death, it was more because of like what a kind of scandalous figure he was. Everyone wanted to talk about him. He was famous for that reason. It was like, oh, Byron. Um, <laughs> but now it's because of his influence on poetry and his very interesting and developed life. Like he brought a bear to Cambridge because there was a rule that you couldn't have pets. And he was like, okay, I've got a wild animal. Like that's, I'm not breaking the rules. Like he was such a shit. <laughs> Didn't he have um, a lot of animals? He did. Like, he had a menagerie. A ton. That's yes. ridiculous. Lots of birds, lots of, did he have a yes. horse? He had, sure uh, Percy he had Shelley horse. gives an account. He arrives in Venice after basically traveling there in like two days because he needs to go sort out this stuff with Allegra and Byron. Because oh, Allegra is unwell and he's like, I have to get there now to help her. And Byron's kind of like, oh, she's unwell, is she? All of the courtesans, I didn't notice. And, and like Byron kind of opens the door. Or I sh- oh, he couldn't have. It would have been one of the servants, but then there's just animals everywhere. There's a monkey, there's peacocks. It's just chaos. Yeah. Ridiculous, man. So like, yeah, the most famous poet ever, but there's also an argument here that he writes for the populace and that's what makes him famous. Certain people will sort of say that, you know, yeah, his poetry is good, but it's not great. It's popular. That's what the people wanted. It's it's dramatic. It's just drama. Um, well, we don't write poetry for the fucking trees now, do we? Who else is going to read them? Well, I don't know. Wordsworth was writing poetry for the fucking trees. <laughs> And there's more going on, but it's the fucking trees. <laughs> we'll get to it. He just nails he nails them face down to a tree. That's the difference with Wordsworth poetry. <laughs> the other ones are facing out. So Byron sort of decides to write Manfred or starts putting Manfred together after he toured around the Alps top house during his sort of stay in Geneva. And it's one of his more sort of popular lesser works. We think of Child Harold and Don John as the big famous ones. But Manfred becomes quite popular it is put on on the stage it sort of has a whole life there and there's a particular reason for that Manfred is the combination of a lot of different literary influences that a lot of people pick up on and see it, see it as developing or progressing or doing slightly differently as Professor Samuel True wrote of the play more than any other English poem Manfred is typical of the Romantic period is it it is an expression of the mood of Romanticism an epitome of the time I don't know the extent that I agree but it is kind of like this landmark text that brings lots of ideas together in particularly in terms of the Byronic hero and so on thoughts and it's influenced by a lot so, so some of the more apparent influences are and I can never say this Shorty Brian Shatu Brian Renee Renee Ooh. anyway this person uh, I've never said that loud it's French but it represents a kind of incestuous relationship there's also gothic fiction he's dealing with um, Faust and Faustus are very clear influences as well as obviously things like Satan so it's complicated there's a lot of ideas coming together and Shu sort of talks about the way Byron wanted this to be mental theatre. So remember I was saying about like the closet 
dramas. And he tries to develop Dimmung, which is a German word for mood, apparently. And Chu says, Manfred opens with a soliloquy justified by the all-important character of the protagonist by the prince precedent of the English and German Faust, and by its service as a keynote indicating the Stimmung of the piece. The essential factors of the situation, sin, loss, and grief, the quest of knowledge and death, are all alluded to in the opening speech, and while further light is thrown upon Manfred's life and character, we are at once appraised of the information needed for an understanding of the situation. The simplicity of the action of the piece makes the exposition a matter of a little difficulty. The early introduction of the supernatural serves, though, in a lighter degree, in a slighter degree, the same purpose as in Macbeth and Hamlet, vis-a-vis to give the proper tone color and to excite the interest of the audience and reader. So immediately from the start, he sets up what the kids call the vibe. <laughs> did you did you learn that from your students? The vibe. We're not we're not that old, are we? Just to not use the word vibe. I don't understand berries and cream. I don't understand that. And now that you've mentioned it, it's on my Facebook profile. There's a mood, and you kind of it's interesting because like the influences are there and apparent, but at the same time they're very subtle and very carefully put together. I quite like it, and I think part of this is because Byron was such an avid reader. He read so much gothic fiction for a time. He worked on the committee at Drury Lane, right, which is a theatre in London. He would have seen so many applications sort of, you know, for this is my um, gothic play that I've written that's a ripoff of Mysteries of Udolfo, can we publish it? And he would have been like, no. But he saw like every single iteration of the gothic and it was all in his head when he was writing this. Wow, so he would have been able to like sense essentially all of the trends of the hanging around, what's popular, what people are reading into it. That's really cool. It's like um, he has like the oversight of a publisher sort of thing. he was very plugged in. Even when he was abroad, he'd be sending letters back to John Murray, who was his publisher, <laughs> who he made famous because Murray was just like uh, publishing travelogues before Byron. It wasn't a big deal. And yeah, Byron makes him famous. And he'd send these long letters of, you know, shopping lists. I remember one that was like, can you send six bottles of soda water or like six chests of soda water or something? He loves soda water and so do I. So, you know, um, <laughs> and long lists of books he wanted. And in the really crappy biopic um, of Byron, the joke throughout the film is Fletcher, his sort of long-suffering servant or manservant, is always having to carry the books around from place to place. So he's like, ah, fucking books. <laughs> that definitely <laughs> happened, honestly. Yeah, uh, Byron's like, well, we're going somewhere, Fletcher, and he's like, fuck! Fetch <laughs> the hardcovers, man. <laughs> well, they're all hardcovers, weren't they? Yeah, um, really big one. So this probably all influenced what Byron was trying to do here. Okay, so the other... So the name Manfred is sort of um, influenced by historical precedent, probably most influenced by Horace Walpole's The Castle of Otranto from 1764 um, in terms of the name. But there is other precedent because Walpole got it from like a, the place Otranto in South Italy, which was ruled over by a Manfred in the 1200s, who was a natural son of Frederick II. Um, but it turned out he was actually a usurper and his nephew's name was Conrad. So there's like, which is all the names in, in Castle of Otranto. Um, so there's this hostile historical precedent as well that I don't I think Byron probably would have been aware of based on his reading um it's just occurred to me that I didn't go and check but I think he was so Manfred is like a gothic name mm, yeah it's yeah. heavily associated with the gothic very at, much at this so. point it, yeah don't yeah. trust a man if his name is Manfred because he's probably got someone locked in his attic yeah but you know you can throw helmets at him and that will scare him to bits <laughs> go listen to our episode on a Tronto when it's out and you'll know what we're talking about or read it the book's very short the other major major influence on this closet drama. Johann Wolfgang von 
Goethe's. <laughs> or Goethe, right? That was the, good. Yeah, the famed <laughs> German poet. He kind of predates Byron a bit. He's, you know, fully grown and matured as a poet before Byron is sort of super developed. Faust, a fragment, is published in 1790. Part one as a whole is published in 1806. Um, and they're sort of published and developed between 1828 and 29. And then part two is added in 1831. If you're going to read f- Faust, just read the first part. That's a 40-year poem. That's yes. a lifetime. People, yes. that's ridiculous. Yes. Like most <laughs> of my adult life is going to be, hopefully, at least 40 years. Yeah, right? That's ridiculous. <laughs> it took him a while. And we're going to look at this um, on its own and we're going to look at Marlowe's Faust at some point. So I'm not going to go into the Faust tradition too much here. But Goethe kind of brought it all together for the Germans and it became super influential, whereas Satan was the big Faust figure for the English because they never really had it. Like Marlowe was big, but no one was, it wasn't as influential as Goethe. Didn't make as many waves. Yeah, less waves. Byron was very aware of Goethe by at least 1816, according to Ian Butler in Byron and Goethe. He already knew de Staal's de Alamein and Werther, and famously Matthew Lewis, who wrote The Monk, read some of Goethe's Faust out loud to Byron at Villa Diodati, which is in Geneva in 1816. I didn't know that. That's really What do you mean? It's all Patrick and I talk about. I didn't know that little tidbit. Now I've got, yeah, now I have to read The Monk again. Oh, so do I. Which is pretty cool. He didn't read German, so he couldn't read it himself. And it took a while for there to be an English translation he could get his hands on. So he is kind of um, left up to other people for a while. And as I said, he journeyed through the Alps at this time. So it's assumed to have also influenced the sublime representation of landscapes. So the way it's sort of thought is like, okay, he's been read Goethe's Faust. He likes the idea and he sees all these mountains and he kind of brings it together in this beautiful poem. Byron did later dedicate or at least try to dedicate Sardanopolis to Goethe. um, But it was during the time we kind of fell with Murray and both of them seem to have forgotten it never quite happened and it turns out Goethe was really offended by this <laughs> I read a book it was all basically what we know of Goethe's perspective and Byron was kind of like embarrassed of, of his influence and, and aware of the older poet's kind of maturity and fame and everything and felt stressed <laughs> and Goethe was very proud a very proud man so he was interested in Byron he read a lot of his work but he also read like Glenarvan and as I say took his understanding of Byron from that um, so he didn't really know him and it took a while for them to sort of exchange letters but they did they did eventually they never met in person then no, no. too far <laughs> so we have sort of Peter Cochran who I mentioned before and Ian Butler to thank for their excellent scholarship on the influences of, Man- of Manfred and as I said on Peter Cochran's website you can see it's got it, he spends a lot of time indexing all of these also of significance is Ben Hewitt's Byron Shelley and, and Goethe's Faust an epic connection which is very dense but pretty good scholarship uh, trying to figure out the very complicated connections between the texts and who took what from who and why they used it and why it's there. And the reason Goethe is so significant is because um, Byron's representation of Manfred is very similar to Goethe's representation of Faust. That's the problem. Yeah, problem. (laughs) And by a very strange coincidence, Goethe himself on October 13th, 1817, had received a copy of Byron's play and he wrote, the most amazing event for me was the appearance a day or two ago of Byron's Manfred presented to me by a young American. American. Americans are everywhere. <laughs> this strange and gifted poet has completely assimilated my Faust and derived the strangest nourishment from it for his my- hypochondria. He has used all the motifs in his own way so that none remains quite the same. And for that reason alone, I cannot sufficiently admire his mind. The remodeling is so complete that very interesting lectures could be given about it, as well as about the similarity with the original and the dissimilarity from it. Although I certainly do not deny that the somber glow of an unlimited abounding despair becomes tedious in the end. Yet the displeasure felt on this 
account is always mixed with admiration and respect. As soon as our ladies, who are passionate devotees of Byron, had devoured the work, you shall have your share of it. <laughs> wow. Mm. So a lot going on there. He recognizes that it's same, same, but different. Yeah. And you can mm. see also that pride you mentioned coming in there. The fact that he recognized that Byron had done something worthwhile, but like, it's not as good as the original and it's, mm. a, it's a remodeling. He tried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 10 days after that, Byron is hearing this accusation a lot from a lot of people and he's getting pissed. And he writes a letter to Murray, October 23rd, 1817. An American who came the other day from Germany told Mr. Hobhouse that Manfred was taken from Goethe's Faust. Whatever may take both the Faustuses, German and English, I have taken neither. <laughs> a lot. And then over two and a half years later on June 7th, 1820, he sums it all up. Here's Goethe's Faust I have never read for I don't know German. But Matthew Monk Lewis in 1816 at Cologne translated most of it to me Vivovoce and I was naturally much struck with it. But it was Staubach and Jungfrau and something else much more than Faustus that made me write Man. For the first scene, however, and that of Faustus are very similar. Okay, so he's like going back and forth, acknowledging, oh, I'm not influenced at all, but maybe a little bit influenced. <laughs> Another letter recognizes this. It says, I mentioned Goethe's comparison of Faust and Manfred and Byron observed evidently in earnest that he deemed it an honor enough to have his work mentioned with Faust. As to its origin, Lord B said that sometime, that sometime before he had conceived the idea of the piece, Monk Lewis had translated to him some of the scenes and had given him an idea of the plan of the piece. So he is clearly influenced by the storyline. German said he, and I believe Goethe himself, consider that I have taken great liberties with Faust. All I know of that drama is from the sorry French translation, from an occasional reading or two into, uh, into English of parts of it by Monk Lewis when at Diodati, and from the Hearts Mountain scene that Shelley versified the other day, because Shelley sets about trying to translate um, Goethe as well. And nothing I envy him so much as to be able to read that astonishing production in the original, because Shelley was much more scholastic of, of the romantic poets who was the one who was like I have to know everything or I will die uh, which is why I, feel I know so someone like that so I think uh, Jerome McGann who's a very uh, significant Byron scholar puts this very well because he says that Byron is oversensitive to charges of plagiarism. oh he is touchy as hell this guy is twitching when you look at him Byron what you got over there nothing nothing <laughs> I've never read um, it good I've never heard of him what's a Faust I, I'm not influenced by Mar- Marlowe I've never read Marlowe no one said that you were or that you yep, did. <laughs> he also says that in his casual pronouncements in his letters, Byron was notoriously inconsistent. This thorn. has become this has become a thorn in my side because I go, okay, this Byron event or this Byron thing, let's figure it out. Let's go through the sources, look through the various biographies, look through the various like notes and things on his work, then look through all of the letters and journals and the letters t- like um, he sends to other people. And you're just trying to put together this puzzle and there's always a piece missing. And it's Peter Cochrane says, it seems to me that Goethe was correct in his reaction in that Byron takes themes from Faust and re-renders them with a view to distillation, interiorization, and economy. Instead of the need for attempt to encourage the protagonist to fall, he presents Manfred as fallen from the outset on his own initiative and without intervention of any third party. So this is a big deal. These are the big changes that he makes. He takes away Mephistopheles and although he retains key scenes and ideas, he represents it as an individual triumphing over like the supernatural or the natural or some sort of sublime otherworldly thing. So it's the triumph of the individual, which is romanticism, English romanticism. As explained by Lorna Fitzsimmons in her article, Faust Adaptations from Marlowe to Abduma and Markland, she says the realm of evil into which Manfred intrudes, intrudes, as already noted, borrows little from the pandemonium of Milton's Satan. I argue otherwise. (laughs) 
But the emphasis is rather on the bold defiance of the presumed sovereignty of Aramenes. Manfred, like Prometheus, defying Jupiter, refuses to bow down and worship. So now we've got Satan and Prometheus <laughs> into yeah. it. But this does beg the question about Marlowe's influence. So I'm talking about Christopher Marlowe and his play, The Tragical History of Dr. Faustus, which is very good. And we'll cover it on another episode. As we've heard, Bar- Byron claims he didn't read Marlowe, but Byron, like the devil, lies. And Peter Cochrane <laughs> did the work on this. <laughs> he says the play so this, this is Marlowe he checked right he says the play Faustus appears in none of the play sets we positively know Byron to have owned these devote very little space to Elizabethan or Jacobean theatre Dr Faustus is neither in Mr Inchpold's British theatre nor in ancient British drama nor in the British drama it is not in Dodsley's old plays um, but it does appear as the first item in a much better edited and printed anthology old English plays brought about out between 1814 and 15 by Dilk who is a friend of Keats and future editor of the Athenium um, Dilk conceived his work as a follow-up of Dodsley and was encouraged in the labour by Gifford himself. Keep an eye on him, he becomes important later. We have no evidence that Byron owned this set, but Gifford was kind of a, patri- a paternal figure to Byron, so it's possible he could have borrowed it. But as he, oh, here we go, <laughs> and Gifford were close at the time, it is quite possible he could have seen a copy at Murray's. However, as all three of the sets he did own were, along with so much else sold in the 1816 auction of his library, the statement, I had and have no dramatic works by me in English seems true, at least as regards uh, the few months between his leaving England and writing Manfred, that a book was not or was no longer in Byron's library does not mean he didn't know it or remember it in addition to the possibility of Gifford showing him a copy of Dilk, the library of Drury Lane Theatre on the committee of which he served in 1815. Till he left the country a year later, he could have very well had volumes, which, you know, he didn't have later. So we just want to know if Byron had a new Marlowe and I think he probably did. Oh yeah, just he seems to have had more opportunities to have it than reasons not to. Yeah, and there's like stuff of Goethe's Faust in there, but there's, as we will see, stuff of um, Marlowe's Faust, particularly that opening scene in his study, I think has more of like Marlowe than Goethe in a ways, but we'll get to that. Um, It's also similar to... Frankenstein. Frankenstein! Frankenstein! <laughs> uh, in the Gothic Byron, Peter Cochrane even goes as far to say that Manfred and Frankenstein have so much in common, one might suspect collusion. And I is- know whose side I am on, which Who? is Mary's. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, the reason there's this argument is because both of them kind of go to carnal houses and try to bring back life and die of this guilt and whatever but Frankenstein is doing lots of extra different and interesting things whereas Byron is just writing a sad guy in a castle with lots of thoughts right yeah (laughs) do you start your lectures with that so this is a sad guy in a castle with lots of thoughts (laughs) (laughs) and the the other thing about Manfred and Frankenstein is obviously they're both being kind of conceived of and developed during this period of like Byron and the Shelleys being in um, Switzerland. So that is another influence because although um, Frankenstein is generally thought to come out of that night where they all sat around and wrote ghost stories, and we'll talk about that another time, you know, Manfred kind of, I think, in a in an indirect way also comes out of that experience and that thinking and those discussions and obviously going to the Alps and the reading he was doing, etc. So the fact that there's like suspect collusion is understandable. Mm. Yeah, well, it's just another one of the gazillion influences that he had if he was taking influence from all these random books and plays. It's exactly. not surprising at all. Chu says that as well as being sort of uh, the epitome of the Romantic period, he argues, a uh, study of the sources of Byron has shown that there are three chief elements in the character of the protagonist, distinct but related to each other. They are the themes of Prometheus, Don Juan, and Faust. 
cast. Manfred is a complete representative of no one of these, but includes characteristics of them all. I think it's more complicated than that. <laughs> I'm not sure about Don Juan, honestly. I don't think it really fits, or Don Juan, and we're going to talk about what characters might fit. So often we think of Manfred as a Byronic hero because he was written by Byron, but now we have a more popular understanding of Byronic heroes and people just kind of throw the term around. What's a Byronic hero, Rowan? Do you want the specific <laughs> one or do you want something just sort of well, like thrown what, around? If I asked it if I asked it at a dinner party, mm. what would someone tell me? What's the general understanding? Uh, they'd probably say, okay, well, he's like this, you know, he's like got, They, I think they'd picture him, they'd say like tall, dark and handsome, but as in like dark hair. And yeah. they'd say that he's like a brooding guy who's like probably rich and he's like got this sort of air of melancholy about him, mm. but like that makes you really intrigued. And he's got problems, like he's got hardcore emotional problems that he mm-hmm. just figures out while standing on mountaintops and like, ex- is, po- what's the word for postulating? Is that the Postulate. word? Soliloquizing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You find him in library rooms soliloquizing to himself. Yes. You're like, honey, it's dinner time. <laughs> yeah. And he's always, he's always a little bit damp because he's always outside in cold places. Um, and he's really not, he's not really, a, he's, he's not a good guy to be around if you want to be happy. Yeah. Generally saturated energy. Yeah. Uh, often a very aesthetic figure, isn't he? You yes. imagine him based on aesthetic. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like to tell students, if you want to see just gothic aesthetic, like bingo gothic, that Tom Hiddleston movie that you watched very recently. Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak. It just, all the boxes, Tom Hiddleston is kind of the, the ironic figure in that. Oh, he is too, yeah. And not yeah. to spoil it, but it's, yeah, my gosh. Yeah, complicated, mm. right? <laughs> Very complicated. So, Byronic heroes, they have this now popular understanding behind them. The problem is, we don't really have a working definition. Like, there are definitions in dictionaries and whatnot, but the scholars, it's very hard to pin down, this is a Byronic hero. It's kind of like this shifting figure. And you can make a kind of list of attributes and say, oh, if it has enough of the attributes then we can think of it as a Byronic hero and I think that's how most people work or they just recognize the aesthetic and say oh part of what influences us is the Byronic hero and people see Byron himself and his life and the way he carried himself and how famous he was etc as really influencing and permeating his work because a lot of them are sort of so biographical and I think that gets us part of the way but the problem is you risk overlooking the significance of the differences and you kind of lump them in together like a lot of scholars will just look at Byron's kind of overall work and say oh yeah these are all Byron on a curo smush, same thing. When, as you know, uh, there are very different things going on in each one, even though he's using very similar aesthetics or styles or characteristics. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> and the example I've put here is like James Bond and Edward Cullen have a number of similar attributes, but they are very different types of heroes. It would be like trying to smush them together and saying they're the same thing, but like there's so much variability. Yeah. And does, mm-hmm. that, is that, does that mean that when people talk about Byronic heroes, they're really trying to just like unstick the tentacles of Byron Byron's influence on everything. Uh, but I think they're de- trying to stick the tentacles of Byron's stick influence. Stick the tentacles. Yeah, that, <laughs> that metaphor didn't really come across. <laughs> I'm just picturing his influence like an octopus spreading it out is. tentacles, but everyone's reading it as one great big tentacle. Yeah. Instead of, you know. Oh, Byron's influence as tentacles is good, though, because you it becomes very difficult to go back to the source. Yeah. Um, but Byron, because he does bring all of these ideas together, they become recognisable to other people as, as style of hero in and of its 
itself and they just kind of lift that and take it and just kind of keep stamping it down on characters even though they aren't really doing anything new or different or interesting with it and they and then the Byronic hero is kind of born as this just kind of like miasmic ball <laughs> ambiguous heroism yeah it's like yeah. yeah it's brooding and it has problems Byronic and just move on whereas it down I, young for us as well yeah <laughs> I think it's a disservice to Byron. I think it's unfair to Byron's very careful, very uh, purposeful characterization of different heroes. So in the Haunted, Haunted Castle, which is kind of laughed at now a little bit, but it's this very early work by Eno Raylo on like romanticism and all of the things going on in romanticism. So it's kind of a good place to go back and sort of check and then work your way from. And he says that a swarthy eye, sullen mood, felon deed, fruitless guilt, gloomy soul, mystery that is so essential, a feature of the Byronic hero. Uh, sorry, gloomy soul. These are all qualities of the Byronic hero and he sort of goes through and finds examples of them all and <laughs> says there we are because there are in all of them it's it's Byronic he says the Jawa is he does t- sort of distinguish he says the Jawa is important because it denotes a new phase in the development of the Byronic hero that without neglecting the pale gloom brought down from earlier pictures his passion and mystery now become expanded into the chief characteristic he also says that the central personage of all Byron's poetry a type with whom he deals from varying points of view and varying lights endowing it with ever new tasks infusing it as in Cain and Manfred a shade of Prometheus defiance of the gods and a demand to know the secrets of the cosmos but always keeping it fundamentally the same see I disagree but I also agree because <laughs> the aesthetic is there but it's different and the motivations are kind of the same but also different I think it's more complicated this is the closest I think there is kind of to an existing definition I found others although he doesn't acknowledge Satan's influence and instead it's about the influence of dif- different heroic traditions rather than trying to figure out the Byronic tradition so you can see the problem Byron smushes them all together and adds something new and then people just take out the thing that he added and smush it down on other things but take yeah. out all the rest of it but then it seems like there's still a line drawn right so Byron it, they take out the Byron bit they smush it down on others and then people go oh well it's influenced by Byron and therefore it's influenced by Satan and Faustus but no actually it's just this aesthetic part of Byron yeah, anyway. that, yeah. no that makes sense no that makes sense because <laughs> it's not like Byron used Faust in all of his other plays either so if yeah. you're going to say that every Byronic hero has the has something to do with Faust that would be incorrect yeah or Prometheus or Satan or anything complicated it's a super Byron's hoop. <laughs> and what is significant is that Byron brings these traditions together and he makes it this kind of archetypal and incredibly influential figure. And that's the whole point of Peter Thorsev's book. And we're going to be talking about Thorsev a lot now that we start What's the diving. book called again? It's called The Byronic Hero. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he also doesn't give us a working definition for the Byronic Hero. Like I've checked multiple times. There is not, this is a Byronic Hero. He gives us like paragraphs where he talks about it, but he never goes, this is it. And here's how you can tell what it is. And because he himself recognizes as is i say the purpose of his book that the byronic hero is other things smushed together and he goes through the different things that have been smushed and looks at the various uh, iterations of the smushing (laughs) iterations of the smushing uh jerome mcgann does note the development in byron and romanticism he says pre-byronic hero villains are sentimental figures because they finally set aside the intellectual issues which they themselves have raised for us but the byronic hero carries out his skeptical programs this is why byron's tales and plays are actively in intellectual works, whereas the monk and the Italian and Diruba are at some point kind of rein in their questionings and set the reader's consciousness at rest. Byron pushes us to be thinking the entire time. That's in Cain, that's in Manfred, it's in Child Harold, it's a constant pressure. No, that makes sense. The role of pride is obviously important. We'll talk about uh, Satan's influence here, but this is important in the Byronic era. There's always an aspect of pride that becomes a kind of corrupting force that I argue is what he takes from Satan. It's obviously in Prometheus and in Faust, but I think like the best version of it is in Satan 
like this is this huge enabling thing, but it also literally damns him to hell. So mm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So when someone says that a Byronic hero might be inspired by Satan and you don't see like hoofs and claws and all that stuff. <laughs> well, we'll look at the exact influences in a second. Now we're going to look at like sort of the different heroic elements of Manfred to try and figure out what kind of dark hero is or what bits are smushed together. And obviously one of them is the gothic villain. And Thorsev has a whole chapter on this and there's plenty of scholarship on it, but Thorsev defines the gothic villain as a kind of unregenerate villain in the novel. But on the stage, he became gradually more sympathetic until at last he appeared a half villain, half hero of sensibility since he became a personality first in the novel. However, and since it, it is in this form that he is comparatively well known, it seems reasonable to discuss the villain of the novel first and so off he goes. But he kind of acknowledges that it become, he, the gothic villain becomes more sympathetic and that's largely to do with Byron's influence. Hell yeah, you get him, Byron. And that's because he's giving them pride. Feelings. <laughs> he gives feelings. Them feelings. Right, we're giving the emotions. <laughs> and I think what is most gothic in Manfred and Chime In here is like the setting and the idea of incest, all of that stuff, that's the gothic. But the rest of it isn't really there. There's not someone, you know, haunting the place. There's not unexplained mysteries going on. He's not, I mean, you could do a feminist reading of Manfred, but he's not holding any women hostage that we know of. That we know of. <laughs> so, so like you said, the gothic is really just the setting and he's using all of these other ideas. Yeah, and he's got so, the name of Manfred. So does that mean it, it doesn't have gothic considerations, just sort of a gothic aesthetic, or is that not true? It doesn't really deal with gothic ideas, I don't think. Yeah. Um, it's dealing more with romantic ideas, capital R. So the other way we can look at Manfred is this kind of like metaphysical rebel, right? And again, this is another sem- um, subcategory Thorsev uses, and I'm just talking about it very generally here. He's just a rebel against the world. He's like, I can't stand He's the a influence. teenager. He's rebellious for the sake of... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, he's repressed by reality because he's gained all of this power, but it's still not enough to bring his long-lost lo- long love back. And he's frustrated and powerless despite his power. And it becomes this paradox that kind of uh, destroys him, essentially. And it's an intangible and oddly unspecific force that uh, that is somehow oppressing him. We never get told very, exactly who it is. Very unspecific. Even then, like, it, I don't know if he, like, made a deal with someone to get these powers and yeah. what they No, for. no, he never did. He, he, he never got did. them. He learned them himself. <gasps> That's um, right. He spent hours and hours, like, looking at the stars and, like, doing yeah. science. He went to the caves. Yeah. Vague science. A self-made man. <laughs> so, you know, the resulting frustration and links to a Hazarus, the Wandering Jew tradition, Faust, Prometheus, Satan, is all about rebelling against a power bigger than oneself and frustration when being thwarted, um, which was obviously all the rage during the Romantic period. So, one of those is the Wandering Jew. What do we know about the Wandering Jew, Rowan? Nothing, actually. I don't oh, even, really? Yeah, no, literally nothing. That's the one archetype that I somehow slipped through during my undergrad. So, you've got <laughs> um, a tabla rasa. Oh, Give oh. it to me! I actually don't want to go too far into it, because we'll do an episode on it in all of its history, right? But the Wandering Jew is a Hazarus, and he was meant to have essentially cursed Jesus on the cross, and his punishment was that he could never die, and he was constantly wandering the earth, telling his story to anyone who would listen. And it becomes a huge romantic motif. This idea of an individual who like can't die and his punishment is that he won't die and has to wander the earth forever is really interesting to them. We see it in like the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, for example. The, the Mariner who tells the story has kind of this wandering Jew vibe. He's like, you, I will tell you my story. And they're like, ah, you're very old. <laughs> and oh. something else I think is interesting, Christina Seron in her chapter, Man for the Bontes and the, Guy- and the Byronic Gothic Hero in, go- in the Gothic Byron, she says, Manfred and Heathcliff share the fundamental features of the damned hero 
grows. Once they lose the possibility of rejoining their split self and the platonic embodiment of their beloved, they find no alternative aim in life but start on a journey far away from familiar people and places. This need to try and this need to flee and try to break free from the haunting past makes up one fundamental li- literary topos of all ages, that of Cain or the Wandering Jew, the journey outside as the journey inside the self. So it's obviously also in the tradition of Cain. We know Cain, yeah? Yeah, yeah. But those at home. <laughs> We're talking biblical tradition of Cain. So the story of Cain and Abel. Long story short, Cain kind of murders Abel, his brother, in the first ever uh, fratricide or human murder because they were eating meat beforehand. Murder was taking place. He uh, essentially cuts out that nice line of humanity and he goes off with his wife and starts a new humanity and, and creates the first cities and invents meat eating and all of these things. So, yeah. But he was, you know, the curse of Cain because he killed his brother. He was cursed by God to also not be able to die and is ostensibly still out there wandering around. I was about to ask, is he still out there like, you know, telling people yeah. to eat meat? He's cursed and it won't, it means he can't die. So it has the wandering Jew idea and the idea that he's kind of a cu- outcast from humanity is there. So the evidence for that. It talks about him being cursed by a power deeper than all yet urged, a tyrant spell which had its birthplace in a stark condemned Satan. The I burning wreck of a demolished world, a wandering hole in the eternal space by the strong curse which is upon my soul. He goes on and says, and by thy brotherhood of Cain, and I call upon thee and compel thyself to be thy proper hell. Again, that's kind of Satan, like your being existing is going to be hell for you. The very like being of you will be hell. You don't have to go to hell, you can just be in hell. <laughs> and he's going to be cursed like Cain, but it also suggests he has some sort of brotherhood with Cain. So he murdered a sibling, maybe a start. It's all kind of, we're in psychoanalytical territory, but it's there. And the curse itself is, nor to slumber, not to die, shall be in thy destiny. Uh, though thy death shall shall still seem near to, to thy wish, but as a fear. Lo, the spell now works around thee, and the clankless chain hath bound thee. O thy heart and brain together hath the word been passed, now wither. So. Wither. Like like a plant? Like, not quite yeah. just... He's just going to wither and become a, like a crinkly little flower. His soul was withering. completely going to die. Yeah. And later on he says to the witch, my solitude is solitude no more, but peopled with the furies. So he's suffering. I have prayed for madness as a blessing. Tis denied me. He says, I have affronted death. The cold hand of an old pitiless demon held me back by a single hair, which would not break. He says, I plunged amidst mankind. Forgetfulness I sought in all. And I dwell in my despair and live and live forever. So all of these, all of this evidence shows his suffering under this curse and the idea that he is fulfilling the um, archetype of the wandering Jew because he's just like wandering around being sad everywhere. Mm. And it's sort of like, what's the line from Paradise Lost? Myself am hell. Um, which way I fly is hell, myself am hell. Like he's saying, yeah, hell is within myself. So we've got Satan here and we'll come back to that because there's even more prominent illusions. But oh. you can see even then, like Byron is influenced by these things and how they're starting to knit together. Yeah. But I think in that evidence is like, oh, we have the wandering Jew stuff being brought yep, in very um, clearly yeah like no, forever no. while suffering <laughs> and <laughs> calling up random women and being like can i tell you what's on my mind <laughs> <I am. laughs> yeah. okay the other sort of lesser heroic archetype that is working here is the idea of like he's an outcast and i've kind of pushed three together here because i think they work together in this case but they're, they're different he's a child of nature kind of like he feels best in the natural world as the romantics believe nature was this restorative transcendent force and it sort of suggests that when he's among humanity, he feels uh, more pressure and is corrupted. But when he's in nature, he's at peace or more peaceful. Um, and also a man of feeling. I think the two kind of go in hand, hand in hand here. We'll look at the hero of sensibility at some point. It's less interesting. <laughs> but basically the, the the idea of a man who's like, I have lots of feelings and I'm just feeling them and talking.
thinking about feeling them. Um, I struggled so much through through that part that of the book. unit. Yeah, yeah. no, I did. I did not because he just he walks around and he finds stuff to cry at, and that's yeah. literally how he you know he, he only recognizes himself when he's looking at his reflection in a puddle of his own tears. Like, dude, <laughs> I'm talking about. Or we're talking about Mackenzie's man of feeling, which is the kind of archetypal work of yeah. this short. I've gone back to it and kind of enjoyed it a little bit more, knowing the context that I have now. But yes, it's sloppy. Um, so we see evidence of this when he's on Yongfrau. He says, I feel the impulse yet do not recede and my brain reels and yet my foot is firm. There's a power upon me which withholds and makes it my fatality, fatality to live. Oh, while he's on top of the mountain, he's talking about how I, he has ceased to justify his deeds unto himself for the last infirmity of evil and he, he sees an eagle and he compares humanity to the eagle and he says, but we who name ourselves as sovereigns, we half dust, half deity. So he's kind of reflecting on these ideas that humans are meant to be awesome and his own humanity and how sad he is. Men are feeling. Sucks to be him. But in, instead of like walking around and being like, oh, this woman is poor. This, you know, this man has one leg. He's thinking, <laughs> isn't it sad that I am not a god like I should be? Is that, is that <laughs> like what he's should doing? Be. Yeah, you're right. That's the vibe. <laughs> yeah, okay. So he's essentially like a cat, but with the ability to feel sad. I, it's funny you say that because um, shout out to Unseen Academicals. If you like Terry Pratchett or if you just like going down weird academic rabbit holes, go listen to Unseen Academicals because that's all we do. We barely talk about the book. It's about the stuff that informs the book. There's an entire episode just talking about like the, the theory of Disney, <laughs> basically. We have a good time. In Pratchett's series, you get kind of, you know, echoes of these ideas and the Byronic hero is represented in a cat. Um, and I argue very vehemently with Josh about whether or not the initial representation of this is a Byronic hero, but I think it wasn't and then it does become it um, because Grebo is a cat and he, tr- he is transformed into a man and he's kind of Byronic weirdo. And then <laughs> later on, he can't control when he's a cat or a man and they're making fun of him and they're being like, oh, animalistic idiot, blah, 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 blah. And they're having an argument about like whether or not he's an animal, but it's actually about the Byronic hero. I can bring it up, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, so the point is in Pratchett, a Byronic hero is a cat. That's very fitting. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I got to read that one now. <laughs> oh, it's not a good one. Ah. <laughs> he talks about the breath of degradation and pride contending with low wants and lofty will to our mortality predominates. And this is him reflecting on feeling, uh, you know, pride and will and our desires. It's all just fluff and then we die. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if he's right. I've been, ha- I've had some pretty nice times since I've been born. That's good. Yeah. In terms of like child of nature, the Shamoy Hunter is surprised to see Manfred so high. He says his heir are proud as freeborn peasants and the mists rise around him and the hunter decides to warn him and he says I'm giddy and he seems tottering already but you know the fact that he's up there he's contemplating his mortality we've got men of feeling and we've got child of nature kind of vibe. Child of nature is a bit more complicated though because the idea is that like you were born out of nature and you're kind of like this innocent uncorrupted virtuous creature we're sort of taking it as like he's Uh, an an adult of nature Well (laughs) he's he's been doesn't he like get most of his science from nature and observing nature and doing that sort of we could make that argument. That's a good argument. Um. <laughs> so, he, like you said, corrupting nature. That's like he was. He definitely wasn't born from a as a sort of like doe-eyed thing. He's more like this great big hand that shot up out of the ground and started fucking shit up and got power from nature. <laughs> so we get further examples of him reflecting on his mortality in a soppy way. Such would have been for me a fitting tomb. My bones had then been quiet in their depths. He's talking about young Frau and saying I should have died. And he says, Oh, in this one plunge, farewell, ye opening heaven. Look not upon me thus 
cast reproachfully, you were not meant for me. Earth, take these atoms. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> like, sir, do you know what an atom is to start with? But how would that work? <laughs> take, me. <laughs> take me. Take me. It was an early understanding that it was the smallest possible unit of measurement, kind of. Which is so, like, reading it now in the 21st century is, is so I mean, dramatic. And it, it, like, I wouldn't be like, take these electrons, you know? I, I mean, you should. I should? Okay. <laughs> take these atoms. And obviously the response from the hunter is, stain not our pure veils with thy guilty blood. He <laughs> said, don't commit suicide, you idiot. And he says, I am most sick at heart. I am all feebleness. And the hunter goes, man, I've strange words and some half maddening sin. He goes on and he says the first of other people, he's talking about the first of their ambition was not mine. The aim of their existence was not mine. Though I wore the form, I had no sympathy with breathing flesh. His joy was in the wilderness and to be alone. And later on he tells the abbot, the lion is alone and so am I and my nature was averse to life. So all of these things together, right? Child of nature, happiest in nature, spurns humanity and like thinks too much about his own feelings and sooks about it. (laughs) But not quite the innocent child of nature. He's um, no. The adult of nature. <laughs> the adulterer of nature. Ah, yes. Perhaps that, that fits well with the incest thing. Oh, we'll get. So again, Chu says, Manfred is solitary, partly by inclination, partly by consciousness of superiority to his fellow man. This is part of it. He's not quite misanthropic, but he knows he's better than everyone. I think, mm. yeah. <laughs> Supercilious. Um, Partly by the weight of his crimes and grief, he knew this. He is a man of mystery and crime and linked with his crimes. He has, like Conrad before him, the questionable virtue of devotion to the one and only love, the single-minded devotion and subsequent loss Manfred characterizes as the core of his heart grief. More than anything else, this idea is the very foundation of Byronism, which again was a big call. Um, But again, they pick out these parts of the Byronic heroes, how this is the center part of Byronism and this is the center part of Byronism. And it's just, like no, 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 it's all, it's all a soup. Put it back in the soup. <laughs> it's all a soup. It's like they're trying to like I don't know, like find a single fish in a barrel of fish, and they just like shove their hand in there and they pick out a random yeah. fish, and it's like I mean, yeah, sure, you got one, but there's about a hundred others in there. It could be any <laughs> one of them. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's and the point is, fish. it's all of the things together, right? That's why I like the soup thing. Like if you take the if you make a soup and then you try to take the salt out, you can't first of all. But then you know you're just looking yeah. at the salt. The salt has to be in the soup to for it to be you know the full thing yeah yeah yeah. so he's not just one fish he he is the barrel of fish and he like you say he's not just the ingredient in the soup that makes the soup this soup <laughs> is the soup i've lost it you can't um, isolate an aspect of byronism because the point is it's all of these aspects working together you see why didn't we just say that instead of working with soup and fish <laughs> metaphor? i'm going to burn my degree it did not get me anywhere i'm just as silly as i was when i left high school Damn. next question <laughs> okay. he also notes connections between different Byronic figures. He, the links between Manfred and Child Harold, who had sighed to many, though he only loved one. The Jawa, who learnt to die but know no second love, like Salem and the Bride of Abydos. He has experienced unnumbered perils, but one only love, like Conrad and the Corsair. There was in his heart love, unchangeable, unchanged, felt but for one from whom he never ranged. So this idea of love is central, but like mm. there's all these other things going on in each of those characters. Yeah. And it's, they're very different things, even yes. though they're very similar things. So it's just... Uh, it's a lot. Well, think of all of the characters in stories that have like been defined by the fact that they've only ever loved one person. Oh. Juliet is not a Byronic hero. Juliet. <laughs> 
<laughs> but interestingly, um, oh, no. Romeo and Juliet <laughs> is a very early example of like modern Gothic when they're down in that crypt scene at the end. Like we'll, we'll look at this maybe. Um, her speech where she's like, oh, <laughs> it's dark and gloomy is very Gothic. Like it drips with these Gothic ideas that we now associate with the aesthetic. Wow. Return to it. Okay. So the other, uh, so that's uh, Child of Nature, Man of Feeling, Outcast, and The Wandering Jew. The other very prominent influences that of the myth of Prometheus. And again, I keep saying this, but we will look at this in detail. Chu says, in Manfred, there is nothing of the high self-sacrifice of Prometheus, who suffers Christ-like for the sake of men, that through his solitary anguish and perpetual war, the sum of human wretchedness may be rendered less. Do we agree? Manfred doesn't really sacrifice anything? Yeah, and I'd say that, in a sense, Manfred's child of nature qualities are kind of in opposition to his Promethean qualities, because mm. Promethean is, Prometheus is supposed to sacrifice for other people, whereas the child of nature is a recluse. <laughs> I am going to the forest. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So. Yeah. Um, it's the pride thing. It's like I went a little too far and Prometheus is sort of the earliest example of that. Well, it depends. In terms of like literary history, he's the early one, but technically Satan came first in Christian history, but you know, everything is fake and nothing is real. Mm. So how do we separate the Promethean pride from the satanic? We'll talk about it when we get to satanic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but as, I mean, we foreshadowed this a little bit. Um, Promethean pride has to have some sort of selfness, selflessness in it. And a little, and some ambition and you know that motivates it but it's for the greater good whereas satanic pride is um because you should be allowed <laughs> like i Karen. should be allowed <laughs> jeffrey in the edinburgh review uh praises byron's manfreds for promethean quality so it's something that's being recognized byron says though that prometheus is for him just one greek tragedy among several although he later talks about although he although he never writes as i remember and i'm going to paraphrase and mess it up but basically he says although he never wrote a story entirely dedicated to Prometheus. It's everywhere. He does write a poem, but it's very short. In Manfred, the sort of the quotes we get that indicate this, he says, the mind, the spirit, the Promethean spark, the lightning of my own being is as bright. And he says to the abbot, to make my mind of other men, the enlightener of nations and to rise, I know I knew not whither it might be to fall, but fall even as a mountain cataract. So Promethean ideas, I mean, even the word Promethean, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's there. Um, even if he's not like acting on these, this sort of sacrificial pride physically he still has it yeah and he recognizes the promethean desire for knowledge and power yeah. i think that's what's more significant perhaps and that's obviously what's also working away in frankenstein and what people associate between the two they both go down to carnal houses and like vaults and caves to dig up the secrets of human life and death still so. bodies <laughs> maybe Just they were down there together yeah <laughs> they're helping each other cute so that's prometheus those are the best the best examples um or the most prominent uh examples of, of prometheus in manfred we also obviously have faustus and i'm talking like broadly of this idea of someone who sold their soul who was already very knowledgeable sold their soul to the devil and then the devil comes um many years later to collect <laughs> and he's like no i'll burn my books which is ugh, heresy he talks about how he can't sleep and he dreams and he's miserable because sorrow is knowledge. They who know the most must mourn the deepest over the fatal truth. Which is a lot. Uh, which mm. is a lot. Like, is that, <laughs> I'm just looking at the Faust section. I'm like, oh, <laughs> Faust, hello. <laughs> I mean, later evidence, he says, philosophy and science and the springs of wonder and the wisdom of the world I have essayed. And this is how Marlowe's Faustus and Goethe's Faustus start. He's like, well, I figured everything out that's here. Maybe I should have some more stuff to figure out. <laughs> he just talks to you. What, what's a name for a manservant? Jeeves! left the veil. <laughs> <laughs> 
Rowan's the funny one. Good or evil, life, powers, passions, all I see in other beings have been to me as rain on the sands. Since that old nameless hour, I have no dread and feel the curse to have no natural fear, no fluttering throb that beats with heart, hopes or wishes or lurking love of something on the earth. So he's saying like he knows so much, it's at the point now where he can't even sympathize with humanity. It's gone and the curse hasn't helped. I bet the curse hasn't fucking helped. And the people he calls up kind of recognize that in him. So they, when the spirits come they're like son of earth i know thee and the powers which give thee power and i know thee for a man of many thoughts and deeds of good and ill extreme and both fatal and fated in thy sufferings also dealing with manfred also dealing with faust and then later on this has the most sort of faustian thing and links him to frankenstein and prometheus again a little bit it says he dived in my lone wanderings to the caves of death searching its cause and its effect and drew from withered bones and skulls and heaped up dust conclusions most forbidden then i passed the nights of science of years in sciences untaught. So it's forbidden knowledge that he's somehow got hold of. Just so cool. Conclusions <laughs> most forbidden. I'd like I'd like to What are this, they? In this yeah no right like in this essay I come to conclusions most forbidden. <laughs> Honestly, HD. <laughs> like <laughs> Good job. Thanks for being creative. Manfred says he made his eyes familiar with eternity and he acknowledges with my knowledge grew the thirst of knowledge. And this is the problem. If you're, (laughs) it's a very scholarly problem. You're forever unsatiated. You're just going to look for the next thing after you get it. But he won't make a pact with anyone. (laughs) The witch says, if thou wilt swear obedience to my will and do my bidding, it may help thee to thy wishes. And he's like, I will not swear. Will not be the slave of those who served me. He won't subject his will. Later in the whole of Aramanes, the spirits know him of a Magian of great power and fearful skill. So again, they recognize it and they try to force him to bow. And he says, I already knelt to my own desolation, which is such a dramatic top top move, isn't it? (laughs) There's no power greater than my own soppy feelings. And the first destiny stands up uh, for him and says, His sufferings have been of an immortal nature like our own. This guy is so sad that, like, (laughs) literally, it's beyond human capacity to feel. Exactly. And he, but the thing is, he can't have the one power he needs because he won't subject himself. So it's kind of a rebellion against the Faust tradition, even though it carries on the suffering of the Faust tradition. He says, Ye know what I have known, and without power I could not amongst you, but there are powers deeper still beyond. I come in quest of such to answer unto which I speak, I seek. He says, Call up the dead. My question is for them. Whom wouldst thou uncarnal? That's so cool. Also, <laughs> they just they just do it because he asks, right? Like he doesn't yeah. make a pact, he doesn't really threaten them. He's just like, please. Yep. Well, they don't even think of he says please <laughs> not even just <laughs> call him up <laughs> so one without a tomb call up a start uh, which obviously links with Frankenstein he's calling the dead from the grave and has been trying to for a while when he says one without a tomb does is that a reference to what they used to do with suicides yeah that's one of the things that indicates that perhaps he killed himself yeah to said thou holds converse with the things which are forbidden to the search of man that with the dwellers of the dark abodes the many evil and unheavenly spirits which walk the valley and shade of death thou commune so again, this idea that he accesses forbidden knowledge. And at the end, the demon comes and past power was purchased by no compact with thy crew, but by superior science, penance, daring, and the length of watching, strength of mind, and skill in knowledge of our fathers. Said with a clenched fist. With a gusto. <laughs> with gusto. Yep, that's it. I didn't make a pact with you. I figured this out on my 
own and therefore he knows it. The thing with Faustus, by the way, is that he's never actually given really any power. He can just kind of perform tricks or get the devil to do his will for him, but he's not given hardcore power. Manfred has that power. He is the most powerful. Um, and as D.L. MacDonald acknowledges, the diabolic pact was essential to the conception of witchcraft set out in Malleus Maleficarum in 1486. It is necessary there that they should make, there should be made a contract with the devil, by which contract the witch truly and actually binds herself to the devil. For this indeed, by the way, normally through sex, for this indeed is the end of all witchcraft, whether it be the casting of spells by a look or by a formula of words or by some other charm. So Manfred's denial of a pact with the devil is synecdoche for his refusal of any kind of exchange or interaction with anyone, even with the chamois hunter who does not ask for his obedience <laughs> or for anything. Uh, Manfred does pay him. He says, here's some coin. Bye. Up is the most important section, which is <laughs> understanding the extent to which uh, Manfred is influenced by Milton Satan, which is obviously Satan! what I spend my life doing. Do you want to sing that again? Satan! That wasn't really <laughs> a song. It was just a, like a single bad note. I like it. What a herald is coming. Okay, so did you notice, you, we've just looked at Satan together, so did you notice any standout similarities between Manfred and Milton Satan? I think possibly the pride in, the pride in the sort of like mind over matter sort of thing, the self over nature. <laughs> How does it go? Self-help <laughs> like, is actually rooted in Satan. Mind over yeah, matter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, Satan is like, I, my big brain is going to be bigger than any like solid, tangible obstacle there is. And I think Manfred kind of has a similar idea. He's like, my big brain is more powerful than anything anyone throws at me, even facts of the universe. For example, I am clay. He thinks Gosh, that's a I good can way think of putting myself it. out of clay. Even gravity must bow down to me and he starts floating. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the pride is what we're talking about. Yeah. You know, if you're going to if you're going to put it in one word, then yeah, pride. Pride, he takes his, his pride from Satan. Yeah, because there's like Promethean ideas there, but not really developed beyond the idea of like using knowledge, I guess. It's, it's a satanic, it's a distinctly satanic kind of pride, isn't it? It is, I think so. Mm. I think also the psychological turmoil that he experiences as he kind of like degrades towards the end of the play is also like what happens to Satan, because we see him at the start saying that, oh, this is my goal and this is my just justification for my goal and let's go and get my goal and then he can't or he realizes he can't and there's that slow psychological degradation as he slowly realizes it and never truly fully accepts it yeah yeah and the sort of like woe is my suffering but suffering is only in my in my brain he can't <laughs> yeah. die <laughs> so uh, yes because we talked about the psychological degradation with satan being a sympathetic quality do you remember yeah i, I, I think, think we spent a couple of episodes on that if i remember correctly you're welcome you're more <laughs> Where now? I really, really liked it, and I'm hoping that I have skills I can apply to other other books now. So oh, books? Okay, I was like, people? Are you? <laughs> no, I'm not going to psychoanalyze anybody. Can you imagine? I don't know if it'd be an insult or a compliment if I went up to someone and thought and said to them, like, you know what? You're you kind of remind me of the degradation of the devil. I think it wouldn't work. Anyway, back to what you were saying, <laughs> please. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, that is something else that is continued here. This comes from Satan. I think that like process of degradation. Yes. And the psychological turmoil, that comes from Satan. But the fact that it is made sympathetic as well, I think also can be traced back to Milton. So we'll have a look here. And I think what's important about that is it's more sympathetic than Milton because he's a better character in most ways. 
Well, he's not the devil to start. He's not the devil, and that does help. It helps a brother out. Yeah. Okay. So, what? How is he like Satan? We get some soliloquizing going on. Do you notice? Yes. Yeah. A couple of soliloquies. Yeah, and that's similar to Shakespeare as well. But I think he, like Byron, is influenced by the two here. And there are like specific allusions, right? So he says the innate tortures of that deep despair, which is remorse without the fear of hell, but all in all sufficient to itself, would make a hell of heaven. Eh? I love it. I'm raising my hands in the air. <laughs> Which is just the same sentiment, but developed a little bit further and perhaps less poetically expressed. What do you think? Yeah, no, exactly that. It has uh, Miltonic vibes. You could. Miltonic vibes. It does. <laughs> like, you could trick me into saying that that's a line from Milton. I'd say, is it? But, like, it could be. Yeah, so innate tortures of deep despair. Again, his suffering is represented sympathetically, which is remorse without the fear of hell. All in all, sufficient to itself would make a hell of heaven. We're also getting this idea that hell is something you carry around with you. It's not a place, it's an experience. So he's saying that if he was to take his brain right now to heaven, he'd still be suffering because all of the suffering is in his brain. Yeah. Got it. Mm. Yeah, no, that's pretty (laughs) satanic. (laughs) But then there's more. He says, the mind which is immortal makes itself, which is again the idea, make a heaven of hell, a hell hell of heaven. You have some sort of agency over your psychological landscape, except he doesn't because he's suffering, but he's trying to suggest that he does. And this is an empowering, noble idea. Um, Is it a mystery? judged idea. And then he can't make a hell of heaven? Mm. I don't know, he's doing a pretty good job of ruining his life. Oh, yeah, no, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I think he's just kind of repeating this satanic sentiment and trying to make it more sympathetic by associating it with with Manfred's suffering rather than as an expression of kind of pride or free will. It's it's both, but it's more suffering. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So in Satan's case, he's saying that like, hey, if we are, like when he's stuck in hell, he's Mm. saying that if the angels think hard enough and create hard enough and be sort of inventive, they can turn hell into heaven. Whereas with Manfred, it's less about his environment and more about the fact that he's suffering. Mm. And And he can somehow rationalise his way out of it. And that is more sympathetic because it's, Mm. well, it doesn't feel as delusional to start with. Even though it probably is. Probably. Mm. Anyway, yeah, right? So developing, it's that conscious, very conscious development of these ideas that Satan had being reinvented and redeveloped here. Okay, another quote. Requital for its good or evil thoughts is its own origin of ill and end and its own place and time. So again, the mind in its own place can have a heaven of hell or hell of heaven, suggesting once more that free will and agency are the sort of greatest qualities someone can have and suggesting that Manfred is empowered because he has them. So Manfred is empowered because he has these satanic qualities, but they are more sympathetic in him because of his suffering. Mm. Yeah, checks out. Checks out. Raylo views Satan as the cause of the gothic villain. He traces it back to Satan. I kind of do as well, as we're going to talk about when we get to the hardcore gothic villains I think like the worst satanic qualities split off into gothic villains and the best ones split off into romantic heroes I think that's what happened that's that's a pretty sexy dichotomy though right? it, yeah well <laughs> <laughs> you're right a gothic villain and a satanic hero walked into a bar and then a bunch of old men argued about it for the next 300 he also says Hamlet and Satan are related souls night darker brooders over deep mysterious thoughts whose likeness having hitherto journeyed apart combine in the Byronic hero so again it's very like ephemeral vague idea of these ideas joining in the Byronic era, but no actual definition of the Byronic era. And it's nice to see the two ideas like put next to each other because it's like, (laughs) oh yeah, there could be something in this. 
Okay, I think the other thing going on here is Byron taken from Shakespeare. And I'm literally reading a book at the moment about Byron, uh, the influence of Shakespeare on Byron, how well he knew Shakespeare. He knew a lot of it off by heart, as it turns out. He was a big fanboy. And it sort of talks about his main influences. Obviously, Milton is up there. Pope is up there. But this book argues that Shakespeare is like very, very prominent. Um, and you can sort of see that in the way his characters uh, soliloquize and are developed um, and have this kind of introspective development, which is quite Shakespearean. Yeah, that makes sense when I was thinking. <laughs> I haven't read the book. No, when I saw the soliloquies, I was like, oh yeah, this is pretty Shakespearean. But the problem is I don't really know about many other soliloquies other than Shakespearean soliloquies and in the ones that we studied in the Gothic. I mean, the Shakespearean soliloquies really make a name for the soliloquy. Yeah. Once you know them, you can should be able to pick out the other ones, right? No? We, we looked right? at satanic soliloquies. We ah, that's at Manfred soliloquies. So for those watching along at home, uh, a soliloquy is when a character comes on stage and they give a speech that is ostensibly for themselves and there's no one else around normally or they're busy or they can't hear them, but it's obviously to the audience. And the idea is they're working something out. <laughs> they're so working like you, through yeah. something. <laughs> so like when you're really stressed and you start talking to yourself, trying to figure out what your problem is. Or yeah. if you're, you know, producing a podcast and there's only one person in it and nobody's listening. Yeah, that. well, that's a very long soliloquy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so we get a number of soliloquies throughout Manfred. Uh, for example, we are fools of time and terror, day is still on us and still from us, yet we live, loathing our life and dreading still to die. Like That's so gothic. And straight out of Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, he talks about life being a detested yoke, a vital weight upon the struggling heart. And he talks about how the soul will often pant for death and yet draws back as from a stream in winter, though be chill, but uh, be but a moments. Like, all right, so Peter Schock kind of brings it all together. And he talks about the cultural matrix of Satanism. He says, by the end of the 18th century, among the literate classes in England, belief in the existence of the devil had all but vanished. Yet if in one sense the supernatural figure was killed off, then in another it is resurrected in the form of a modern myth. This observation confirms Byron's significance not as authoring the satanic myth or embodying it as a singular perversion, as some of his contemporaries claimed, but rather as standing a la wild, I knew you'd like that, in symbolic in symbolic relations to a central cultural phenomenon of his moment. What is Peter Schock saying, Rowan? I think he's saying that the devil probably became some sort of like cultural motif that everyone yeah. was drawing on and Byron is one of the people whose illusions is most famous and influential. Yeah, yeah, he, good. Look at you. <laughs> I think it's interesting that, yeah, the figure of Satan with like horns and evil was killed off. And then we got this kind of sentimental, metaphysical hero that combined Promethean ideas with Shakespearean ideas and like humanized him. And then the romantics take that tangle of like flawed psychological development and flawed moral justification and all of these things and just like, oh, this is a fun bouncy ball. Mm. Let's go bounce it on some shit. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just throw it at some dudes in the street and see what they start to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they just started playing around with it. Um, he also says, Milton Satan assumes in the Romantic era a prominence seen never before or since, nearly rivaling Prometheus as the most characteristic mythic figure of the age. A more active and ambiguous mythic agent than the bound, suffering, forethinker and benefactor of humanity. The reimagined figure of Milton Satan embodied for the age the apotheosis of human desire and power. I'm incredibly pissed off because he wrote this before me. This is what I want to say 
but then I want to say more, but he's written this. It's actually good in a way because I can sort of say, oh, this person's kind of said this already, but I can build on it this way. For those um, who are writing an essay in the background, <laughs> you can build off what exists. Yeah, he becomes a, a more important figure than Prometheus at this time because Prometheus was essentially benevolent, right? He was a good guy. Whereas Satan, you've got to reconcile, as we discussed at length, the good stuff with the bad stuff and he becomes a more complicated figure that is more fun to experiment and play with. And that's super powerful because that means you have like like a turning point with heroes where you've gone from people just being good and, you know, examining them being on boats and winning wars and that sort of stuff to people who have what is more likely, like more relevant struggles because yeah. they're complex and they're good and they're bad. Turning point is right, yeah? We get genuinely, incredibly psychologically complicated characters that I, that take on these satanic, satanic ideas that we didn't really previously have. And we have the idea of Satan as an incredibly complex figure, which is something we didn't previously have. So all of that stuff we were talking about in Paradise Lost, that it was a turning point, that it humanized the devil, here you see it in action. He is taking those characteristics and playing around with another character using them, which is fun. And so that sort of introduced a new concept of complex character character to the yeah. to the culture. And I that's, think that's it. And, and your thesis argues, this is why we have Batman. <laughs> Batman. Well, when you when you put it like that, it sounds useless. But <laughs> but yes, essentially, it was it was a downhill slope. It was a slippery slope from Satan. Actually, the, the romantics saw a character and they were like, huh, I can make him worse. And then they did. <laughs> now we have Batman, the Joker. It kept happening. Yeah, no, you're right. There's probably some like points along the way that helped the development, like the Gothic villain and like Shakespeare is obviously significant as well. We couldn't have done it without other stuff. It was it was a combination of things, but you definitely couldn't have done it without Milton Satan. And and Shock kind of has a theory for this, which I think is important. He notes that since Faust one arrived in British culture relatively late, having been largely ignored until the Alamein, it was Milton Satan, not Goethe's Meta- Mephistopheles, that answered the artistic and ideological demands of English writers, including Byron. While Milton Satan is without doubt and understandably a greater presence than Mephisto in British romantic writing, it would be careless not to entertain the possibility that Goethe's character influenced Byron and so on and so forth. So we sort of talked about that already, but you can see this, like, we're acknowledging the fact that Satan was this huge cultural presence because probably Madeline Callahan similarly talks about the poet hero and the work of Byron and Shelley um, because these are the two poets that most consciously work on these ideas. She says, despite both poets possessing different aesthetic sensibilities and poetic preoccupations across both sections of the book, hmm, I show Byron and Shelley to stage the struggle to be in heroic language. The poet hero grapples with the reality that the poet encounters or creates and the resulting orchestrated conflict becomes the creative principle central to their poetry and drama. Byron and Shelley perform the drama of poetic creation with poetic heroism as a locus of their aspiration and doubt. Um, so like they're playing around with what the hero is. Okay, so just, is that kind of saying that like the orchestrated conflict with many of Byron's heroes is this sort of metaphysical struggle and yeah. that became a sort of like a characteristic of his work at some point? Uh, yes. I mean, it's in bo- most of the Byronic heroes is this kind of struggle against some oppressive tyrannical force, whether it be metaphysical or patriarchal or whatever. He, I mean, as we talked about before, this is a theme in Byron's life. He wanted to depict struggles against tyranny. That's why he loved Napoleon so much. Nerd. Nerd. I've also got another vague definition of the Byronic hero here. He says, uh, the true Byronic hero is a poet, the, the hero who battles the verbal multiverse and the self to discover words adequate to expression. Shelley's poet hero, instead of decrying the limits of his existence, explores the precise nature of the relationship between his state and conceptions. The role of the poet comes to the 
the primary fixation of Shelley's work as the poet explores and experiments with how to lay claim to the title of poet hero. So the Byron Kieran might be a poet hero that's kind of worked in the work worked out in the work of Byron and, and Percy Shelley. He's interested in the limits of his existence and trying to figure that out. So it's just an introspective hero who like tries to work through himself by being poetic about it. I mean, you could probably teach a bug how to write poetry and sit them in front of a mirror and it doesn't make it a Byronic hero. No, it makes it Kafka. <laughs> That was that was the best thing you said. No, no, it, that was that was a lie. That's the that's the funniest thing you said. No, that's not even true either. That was really good. Okay, so it's a weird quote, but it kind of helps us to understand satanic development, or at least that there was this focus on this style of character development. Um, Clara Tweet argues the rhetoric of Byronic Satanism does not necessarily imply a direct, unmediated relation with Byron's personal beliefs. Indeed, Byron problematized the idea of any kind of religious belief as a form of will, intention, and agency, which is important. Uh, okay, Jerome again also points out in a footnote in Byron and Romanticism that Byron's rhetorical rhetorical management of these tales is a romantic equivalent for the rhetorical techniques used by Milton, which were most recently described by Stanley Fish in Surprised by Sin. Both poets set intellectual traps for their readers, but Milton's technique is employed to strengthen the reader's faith, whereas Byron supports a new philosophy that calls all into doubt. I'm very happy I found that footnote. That's really good. It's a good footnote. Yeah. Do we agree? I think so, yeah. And and it provides a nice clean line between Milton and Byron as well, Mm. which is nice. (laughs) Only only through reader reception theory, which bothers me, but I still like it. It also means we have to acknowledge that Fish is maybe right or partly right. Okay, so he's clearly developing the idea of the satanic hero through the process of characterization, through the qualities of characterization, through the sympath- making um, satanic traits seem more sympathetic, um, and through the direct illusions. So we've got a, a whole miasma of <laughs> characters coming together that people say is the Byronic hero. They look at Manfred and say, oh, Byronic hero. If people were pushed, they might say gothic hero, but as we discussed, not super gothic. Um, then they might, oh, there's bits of the child of nature, there's bits of the wandering outlaw, there's bits of the of her, a hazardous Satan Prometheus, but then it's like, oh, I don't know what kind of hero Manfred is, though. Oh, so he's a Byronic hero. He's a hero soup. Okay, so the other version of Manfred, and this was the first ro- version written, and in it, the abbot is the bad guy, and he threatens Manfred, and Manfred dies as a result of an unexplained fire. In the new version, he defies the demon who comes to collect his soul, saying it had not been purchased by compact and dies of his own accord, which you could argue does reclaim something of the wrought-up death of Faustus a little bit. Don't know what that was about. So why does it change? Well, as William Gifford, who is something of a, a kind of paternal figure to Byron, turns out he was quite mean to Keats. In a memo to John Murray, <laughs> this is the fun bit actually, no, no, as an aside here, right? So, you know, doing a PhD, you you kind of explore pockets at a time. You get your overview and then you start digging down into the pockets, right? So I've been, I knew Keats and I've been burrowing <laughs> mm-hmm. and I've done yeah. this to each one. So I did it to like Godwin, I did it to Hazlitt, I did it to Mary Shelley, I did it to Percy Shelley. Obviously Byron was first and Milton was long ago but I spent the last couple of months just like digging around in the Keats sand pit having a great time just kicking shit up everywhere yep. but the thing is as you read like multiple biographies of each and like know their work and know the scholarship on it you start to like make these connections between names so someone that's just unmentioned in a Byron biography is like suddenly very significant in Keats and you're like wait I know this guy and then you're like you're getting 100 year old gossip <laughs> you're getting the tea from different sources yep. it's very fun so this guy was an asshole to Keats he was a bit mean, and then Keats also wanted John Murray to be his publisher very briefly, but he knew it wasn't gonna wasn't gonna go for him. See, Keats was made fun of because he was part of the so-called Cockney school, which was sort of 
looked down on for their lack of education and lack of good breeding. <laughs> so, William Gifford. He says, on receipt of the first manuscript of third act of the third act, my dear sir, I found your parcel here at four, so that it's hardly possible to do anything by post time. I love this shit. Nor indeed can I say much more. <laughs> I have marked a passage or two which might be omitted with advantage, but the act requires strengthening. This is me giving feedback. There is nothing to bear it out but one speech. The fire is despicable and the servant's uninteresting. The scene with the friar ought to be imposing, and for that purpose the friar should be a real good man, not an idiot. More dignity should be lent to the catastrophe. See how beautifully our old poet Marlowe has wrought up the death of Faustus. Several of our old plays have scenes of this kind, but they strove to make them impressive. Mentor should not end in this feeble way. (laughs) After beginning with such magnificence and promise, and the demon should have something to do with the scene. Do not send my words to Lord B, but you may take hint from them. Say that the last act bears no proportion in length to the previous. Sincerely, William Griffin. And what did he do? He sent the words to Lord B. Directly. Good. Very good. (laughs) No, let's just put sodium in the bathtub. It's like the 19th century equivalent of forwarding on and CCing in. (laughs) Gifford just shits his pants like I would. (laughs) That was was scathing. Yes. Saying that the third act is complete bullshit. Yes. So on March 10th, 1817, Murray wrote to Byron, enclosing Gifford's letter and writing, as I told you in my last letter, that Mr. G was very much pleased, was pleased with Act 2. And as you know, he takes a paternal interest in your literary well-being. He's he's crafting a shit sandwich right now. That's what he's doing. (laughs) Um, My supervisor does that. He does not by any means like the conclusion. Now I am venturing upon the confidence with which your lordship has ever honoured me in sending the enclosed. I fear I am not doing right. I am not satisfied, but I venture and I entreat that you will make a point of returning them. Turns out Murray's been reading too much of the Austin he was publishing. I have told him that I've made a letter from them, but there is so much friendly good sense in them that I cannot refrain. I'm sure you can, and I am almost sure that you will improve what begins and continues so beautifully in a drama of any kind. The last act is the difficulty, and this you must surmount. Surmount the difficulty, Lord B. That was a good sandwich. That's a good sandwich. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't how do you how do you think Byron would have reacted to that? Not well. I think he would have Not had well. a little tantrum. Thrown some soda water. Yeah, at someone. Absolutely. Yeah. The abbot is become a good man and the spirits are brought in at the death. <laughs> you will find I think some good poetry in this new act here and there. And if so, print it without sending me further proofs under Mr. Gifford's correction if he will have the goodness to overlook it. I think you can read that as like quite forgiving or you can read it as quite terse. Mm-hmm. Like don't send me any more drafts. Get him yeah. to look at it. I'm busy with my monkeys. <laughs> Probably both. So there's that. Alright, let's talk about incest. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't have any I don't have any jokes up my sleeve. This is Okay, so incest. It is a hallmark of Gothic fiction. You get it in the Gar- in the Castle of Otranto. In particular, you get it in the mysterious mother. There's a lot of it. We know it was, you know, Oedipus, the story of Oedipus is based on this Hippolytus. It's everywhere. It's from always. Although Hippolytus, I think, is an interesting example because it's the so there's a married couple, Theseus um, and Phaedra, and then Theseus's son from Hippolyta, who he raped, is Hippolytus. And then he comes back and he marries Phaedra. And Phaedra is Hippolytus's age. He's a much young, mm. she's a much younger wife. And Hippolyta falls in love with Theseus, the same age, much sexier version of Theseus. So, I mean, then she kills herself because she can't be with him, but whatever. Um, you know, everyone's like, uh, incest, but it's I don't know. You know, it's complicated. 
they're not, well, I sound like the devil's advocate, but they're not yep. blood related, are they? She's you just, said it, not me. Yeah, no, she's just getting with His stepmother, her husband's yeah. son, yeah. Yeah, her stepson, which is okay. It's weird, but okay. It makes people uncomfortable. Incest is a hallmark of the gothic villain, and you'd be surprised who talks about this. He wrote an article called Incest is a Romantic Symbol. He says uh, it it has universal interest. Incest is a dramatic theme involving, as it does, a passionate conflict between individual desire, which may may or may not be universally shared, the most universal taboos. He also says the gothic uses of the incest theme to symbolize a basically irrational element in the order of things, a capricious fate, or to symbolize the psychologically dark and irrational, the unconscious and unnatural desires in the heart of man. So he takes the psychoanalytical approach essentially. Raylo says a similar thing. He says, it is classifiable as it is with melodramatic materials in general. It appears specially developed in those times when romanticism surges nearest to its ultimate pathological frontiers. The desire to deal with such a film theme is in itself a pathological feature of romantic psychology. So it's path- I've said they're vague and unhelpful, judgmental. I think perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> he also says Byron never deals with incest as a misfortune occasioned by ignorance, as you sort of see in Oedipus, etc. But always as a deliberate action the people know they're being incestuous whereas in something like the monk he doesn't know it's his sister when he rapes mm, her yeah Spoiler. <laughs> so it is a different sort of psychological turmoil we're getting with Byron. yes now this is significant and important to me we're going to look through the evidence of the incest and we're going to talk about like whether or not it seems sympathetic so let's go he says at the start i never quelled an enemy save in my just defense my wrongs were all on those i should have cherished so we get this hint that he hurt people he loved he goes on and when he's talking about a start he says she was like me in liniments her eyes her hair her features all to the very tone even of her voice they said we they said we like to mine but softened all and tempered into beauty and she had the same lone thoughts and wanderings the quest of hidden knowledge in her mind to comprehend the universe as well as tenderness humility and humility i loved her and destroyed her so she's very similar to him he's saying mm. <laughs> mm. well wasn't just thinking back to milton satan not to bring him up again no not specifically Satan. just thinking of paradise loss Eve being a counterpart to Adam is that she is like Adam but tempered and softened yes uh, well it's the beautiful and the sublime uh, mm. that we're seeing so Manfred is sublime and then Astarte is beautiful as well but to me I've always looked at it and gone oh but she kind of has sublime qualities she's the quest of hidden knowledge and a mind to comprehend the universe like that's still yeah. pretty sublime and she also reappears as a fucking ghost so that's yeah. pretty freaky Thou <laughs> <laughs> loves me too much as I loved thee he says to her when she comes back as a ghost we were not made to torture thus each other though were the deadliest sin to love as we have loved so that's the big hint that's the take home yeah i think the only um way that you could like fight about this is like are they siblings or are they twins because <laughs> I mean, uh, is what's worse mm, yeah i think you have to ask george rr R. martin and then obviously the servants say later on this is a sort of last big hint with him the sole companion of his wanderings and watchlings her whom all earthly things that lived the only thing he seemed to love as he indeed by blood was bound to do the lady a start his and he was cut off so i mean byron's just fucking with us he's literally being like mister and then next rhyme ends with and dramatic pause <laughs> you know like how some advertisements
advertisements do that thing where they suggest they're about to say the word ass and then there's just like a beat. <laughs> That's what he did. <laughs> so I mentioned that, you know, there were previous examples. So we've got Horace Walpole's The Mysterious Mother, 1768. You've got The Ramus of the Forest, 1791. We've got Matthew Lewis's The Monk. It's also hinted at in The Bride of Abydos and Byron says in a letter, none else could there obtain that degree of intercourse leading to genuine affection. I had nearly made them too much akin to each other. He's talking about the brother and sister or the two main characters in it. And though the wild passions of the East and some of the great examples in Alfieri, which is Mira, 1789, Ford, Tis a Pity She's a Whore, 1633, and Schiller, The Bride of Messina, 1803, to stop short of antiquity. So he's saying like, it's a sympathetic, it's a nice trait, we like this. <laughs> he says the best poets do it. It's also in Shelley, I need to point that out before we sort of go on. Shelley has incest themes in Alasta, most famously the the, the Senchi, the Senchi, mm, his Italian one, The Revolt of Islam. Episcure? Episcopi. Anemone. So it's, it's there and it's a thing that's being done by other people. But Byron's use of the theme, I think, is significant. Why do you think might, that might be? Because we are meant to feel sorry for him instead mm. of like... But why would Byron be particularly interested in incest? Ah, because he is an own right and own voices writer in this <laughs> particular circumstance. He practiced what he preached. Yeah, he was... Because <laughs> 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 he fucked his half-sister. Right. So often, I mean, as we said, you know, readings of Byron often use biographical information, which I think is hard not to do because of how much of Byron's own biography he very clearly and pointedly and purposely put in the play. But then because of Freud, people often try and do psychoanalytical readings and just say, oh, it's representation of his own anxiety around this. Um, I think, though, Joseph Carroll is quite right when he says Freudian readings of literary text almost inevitably introduce distorting ideas of incest and, and castration anxiety and a form of literary analysis that appeals to evolutionary psychology rather than Freudian psychoanalysis will have a vastly improved access to the deep structure of literary representations. So basically, psychoanalytical, psychoanalytical theory is hogwash for the most part. What I think is more helpful here to understanding, and you've got to have to sort of hang on with me for a bit, because I'm not sure this is fully right, but I think this is a significant contribution to the discussion. If we're doing, if we're already doing a biographical reading and we're already doing Freudian readings and people keep doing Freudian readings, I think we have to at least leave some space, a tiny box for an evolutionary psychology reading. Uh, sorry, for those that don't know, literary Darwinism is a developing school of literary theory that takes ideas from evolutionary psychology and basically applies them to literature to help us try and understand them in a different or more in-depth way. And by evolutionary ideas, it means like understandings about family relationships, social relationships, why we read, how we read, why that's helpful to us. But I think it is quite helpful for helping us understand things like incest, which have been shown to be evolutionary adaptations, right? You have to avoid incest in order to encourage diversity in the gene pool and in turn reduce the risk of genetic disease disease, produce healthy descendants, and ensure the persistence of the individual's DNA, right? That's evolutionary <laughs> at work. So if incest avoidance is part of keeping the gene pool clean, how do we, oh, as part of keeping the gene pool diverse, thank Help. you, how do we create incest avoidance? And the guy who first came up with it, his name was Edward Met Westermark, and he first hypothesized that the reason individuals feel an innate aversion to incest, this is in 1891, was because 
they became um, averse to sexual behavior with those they grew up in close proximity to. So basically anyone that they grew up with. Siblings, parents don't bone them because the gene pool goes out the window. And then since then, Western Marx theory has largely been supported by evolutionary biologists like this. Yes, it makes sense. We see it now as an adaptation. So with that in mind, I think it's worth pointing out that Byron didn't grow up with Augusta. He like knew of her and was writing letters to her while he was at Harrow School, but he didn't know her and he didn't grow up in close proximity with her and he only sort of rejoined with her as a young adult and a young man. And I think part of this is like Byron felt lonely with everyone else. He always struggled to get on with women. He had this very like strong relationship with his sister and that grew into a romantic relationship and he didn't actually have the aversion sort of that had developed to stop him but knew from a social perspective it was bad. So I think it's one of these very rare examples where it's like it's incest but because they haven't grown up with that adaptation in place he doesn't feel that way even though him and his society think he should feel that way so he's constantly walking around with this inner turmoil knowing that oh I shouldn't have slept with my sister or had any kind of romantic relationship with my sister but also it was pretty great and I loved her and what do you people care and why should you have a say in it so he kind of defends it and represents it sympathetically my overall point here right is in all these other examples of the gothic hero where they've had an incestuous relationship it's often an expression of um, patriarchal violence or oppression whereas here I mean you could do a feminist reading and read it as oh he oppressed Augusta and whatever but I just don't think there's any evidence there for that <laughs> like what is also going on is he's trying to defend this kind of relationship between brother and sister and showing how how much suffering Manfred goes through after that you feel sympathy for him and and his plight what do you think it's a lot it's a lot I think so I think it's maybe the clearest sort of reading you can do from Byron's life to what he's expressing in his poem. And I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, challenge me if you want. I'm still trying to develop this idea, but I think it contributes. I think it's another explanation. It's it's something else. And like, yes, you can't empirically prove that Byron slept with his sister, but most Byron scholars agree. We're pretty sure he had a baby with her. The letters are pretty damning, particularly what we have left. I mean, the worst ones were burnt, so what we have left, if they're damning, I hate to think what was gotten rid of. I've lost you're dead. You're dead. No, I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Byron also says in Cain, by the way, because obviously the first family, everything is incest. Ada asks Lucifer whether or not loving Cain uh, is a sin. And uh, he says, no, not yet. It will one day be, it, it one day will be in your children. Acknowledging that like in very fallen society, it will become a sin and sort of suggesting in kind of like, not necessarily pre-fallen society, but early society, early society it was and it was a better time or something like Byron clearly feels sympathy to these kind of feelings perhaps because he didn't understand them himself because he didn't have them because he didn't grow up in close proximity with his sister. It's the same thing now as you're like, oh, you know, I knew them when I was very young. They're like a brother, so no, that's really gross. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Definitely. Um, So he would have seen if we were going to go with this reading, he would have seen the aversion to incest as more of a sort of social convention. Yes, and a taboo yeah. rather than yeah. And I, and look, it might be a bit of both. Um, You might, there might be a day one day where all social convention is gone and it's okay I would argue based on my understanding of evolution and evolutionary psychology that people would still want not want to sleep with those that they grew up in close proximity to even though doing so would have like no adverse ramifications because I assume you'd use contraception and everyone would be a consenting adult and there's like no technical problem but everyone feels weird about it because we have developed incest aversion I'm well, trying. I <laughs> so 
Are you are you developing an idea? Yeah, I understand. I don't I don't want to just repeat what you've said back. Promise. Okay, so my whole point here is he makes the gothic villain, he makes one of the huge hallmarks of the gothic villain more sympathetic. I think that blends in with all of this other stuff he's doing, making Satan more sympathetic, taking these ideas of, of the wandering Jew, of the Byronic hero. The Byronic hero is a hugely sympathetic figure who is still like incredibly problematic at his very core, right? So we're dealing with these satanic themes, we're dealing with gothic villain themes, it all comes together. And one of the um, one of the ways that Byron could do that was because he had the ability to sympathize with something that nobody else could possibly, mm, yeah, yeah. at least in the case of Manfred. Yeah, uh, and I, I mean, as I said, uh, incest is kind of a common theme in his work. I guess it's that thing of like, how much is it, how much is it a theme of the period and something that he was just sort of playing with? But I just think the relationship with Augusta would have made it much more personal from him, for him. It's also in Paradise Lost, by the way, there's that incestuous relationship between sin, death and Satan. Yeah. It's generally a hallmark of evil is the point, but here it's somehow a hallmark of Satan being a sympathetic figure. He is a better figure because of his loving relationship with his sister. Even we recognize that. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense, actually, because the same thing that sort of damns Manfred, which is his incestuous relationship, is the one thing that makes him more sympathetic because, like mm-hmm. you said, love is one of the... It's something that, it's like... It's a redeeming quality. It's redeeming quality, <laughs> but also, like, again, from an evolutionary psychology perspective, the capacity to love, the capacity to care for your children, the capacity for uh, essentially engaging in altruistic behavior or pro-social behavior with other people in society, whether that be in your immediate family or beyond, is an indicator to other people that you are a good person. Like We're meant to read that and make conclusions about that and in terms of our own social dealings with that person. And one of the running theories is, and we'll talk about this later, it's developed by sort of Brian Boyd, Joseph Carroll, various others, uh, Jonathan Gottschall. They're talking about as acting, uh, the, the reason we like storytelling and the reason we like story so much is it creates the conditions where we can practice this kind of social interaction in a very low stakes environment where you can go oops I like Satan turns out he was a bad guy oh well there's no social like consequences for what I did and you can just kind of experiment with these figures it creates conditions for social experimentation without consequence like all three seasons of Hannibal yeah (laughs) so it's um, essentially very important for us to learn social codes of behavior whether they be good or bad is the point so the ones our attention is is drawn to characters because they're interesting um but the reasons they're interesting is often in line with these kind of social parameters right so we think oh manfred is a good guy because he's nice to his sister he's nice to people he's nice to the hunter he's nice to the witch and then she's mean to him at the end he's nice to the abbot even though he's bothering him and he tells the demon to sod off like he doesn't actually do anything antisocial to anyone or manipulative to anyone even though he goes to the caves of death and we look at that and go he's a good guy but he has fucked his sister so in the end he's characterized by this sort of like deep set contradiction in being both a good and bad person. Satan. Satan. <laughs> all, all roads lead back to Satan. Yeah, exactly. It's And it becomes very difficult for us to kind of reconcile and, and decide what we think about this figure because in many ways he's likable to us, but also in many ways we're like, no, thank you. <laughs> Which is why we're still talking about him. Yeah. However, he's later. So I think that is just like to add on to the existing scholarship and, the, and talking about the character types that exist within Manfred and what Byron is trying to do there. I think that is the kind of more modern theory and discussion that you kind of bring can bring to it to examine not only the, the development of existing characteristics, but like why those are interesting to us still now and why they were interesting to them then and why they are experimenting with those aspects. So join us next time on Of the Devil's Party. 
join us for sin. Sin and delicious sin. We're going to live deliciously. What are we going to be doing? Hey, more Byron. I think it's easy to start with Byron and swim around a little bit and develop that confidence and then zoom out from there. Josh is just appalled I'm not going in order and I'm like, no, no, no. That's fine. <laughs> Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 